Bowie Bank. On the Empire Podcast this week, we take a walk down Thunder Road with that film's writer, director, star, and more, Jim Cummings. And I signed a check to Bruce Springsteen because he owns his own music. He's a very smart man. Plus, we take a waltz down memory lane with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Charles Dance. Arnie came in and he said, you know, you need the money you make from my movies to make your art films. <laughs> Plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that will never walk alone. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to this week's Empire Podcast. That's it. That's the last football reference. Uh-huh. I promise you. I promise you. Yeah. Okay. I promise you that it's the last football reference sure. on this podcast. I heard last oh, week God. there was lots and lots of self-indulgent football twattery because I wasn't here to, uh, to nip it in the bud. Oh, uh, I'm joined by two colleagues, especially for Cunning. Yeah. First up. Is our geek queen, Hello. Helen O'Hara. And then our super sub, oh, that's the second football reference. James Dyer is also here, which is nice for him, I guess. Is it? Maybe less so is for it? the listenership. I had such a lovely week last week. So did we, actually. It yeah. was great. <laughs> the podcast tone was right. But this is why you spent single mention of the pilot TV podcast. It was glorious. On about Champions League tickets or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And where, where did they get me? Where did it get where me? Where did it get you, Chris? I know, it where got did me. It get you? I'll tell you where it got me, Helen. It got me here. I'll tell you where it didn't get me. Fucking Madrid. That's where it didn't get me. Yeah. I can't believe that not one person took me up on my very, very generous and ethically sound no, offer. Chris, again. Of <laughs> guaranteed four-star review for a film of your choice, ideally one that you have made and you've got some, you know, stake in, right? In exchange for two tickets for the Champions League final, flights and accommodation. Now that That is totally fine to do. Oh, and they were on the podcast for three weeks and we would do a spoiler special. So you asked the wrong thing. Like, Helen, if I'd flown you to the Champions League, would you have bumped up your review of Molly's game? No. <laughs> or would actually that Mostly have just exacerbated the situation? <laughs> it's like, what? Now I have to watch football as, as well? well? Okay. Two stars. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, it's dropping down by the second. <laughs> uh, so yeah, amazingly, no one came forward with an offer on, on that one. That uh, is such who, a who surprise was, to me. Oh, who wow. was playing in, in the, the football? Oh my God. No, seriously, who was playing? Who no, they are playing. playing. It's oh, it's weekend. not happened yet. No, no. right. Okay, it's, it's happening on Saturday. Okay, uh, the uh, Liverpool Football Club. Right. Okay, I'm familiar the, with that. The Hotspurs of Tottenham. Okay, I've heard of them too. In the Champions League final, so it's the biggest game. Hang on, in how club is football. this different from the one that you were whinging about a few weeks ago? What one I was whinging? The one about that you were upset about ago. because you didn't win because the other team won. That's the league, James. And that's different to this? Yes, James. Right. And so they have different little trophies for this one and that Quite one? Quite big trophies. Yes, James. They have, they have different little trophies for okay. the different little competitions okay. Good. Good. in which they play. I feel anyway, I've been instrumental in derailing this podcast. <laughs> yes, with football twattery, yes. which I was very keen to avoid this week. Yeah. Because what, it's consuming my every waking thought as it is. Yeah. And so I don't need you coming in here. Right, talk about the Pilot TV podcast. Go on. Well, the Pilot TV podcast is, of course, excellent. And uh, in this week's Pilot TV podcast, we have uh, Charlie Brooker and Helen Annabelle do you have Jones a podcast talking about Black Mirror. <laughs> I'm on Flix Watchers this week. Hey, that's uh, good. Yeah, which that's is really Kobe, good fun. right? Yeah, and yeah. we talked about Hearts Beat Loud, which is, of Great course, film. an excellent film. Um, good so film. that was really good fun. Well, I was on the Spotlight podcast doing a Star Trek Discovery Season 2 blow by blow spoiler special. Oh, my God. It goes on for about four hours. <laughs> I cannot believe you cheated on our planned Star Trek Discovery I know. podcast. Sorry, I'm a real uh, patak. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to say it, but... Yeah. All right, um, we do have a question. I can't find the question, but I kind of remember it, and I remember it was from at Carl from Wolves, and it was basically because of all the various musical biopics that mm-hmm. are, are in cinemas, Rocketman, 
Bohemian Rhapsody most recently. There's a Boy George biopic that's just been announced that we'll probably talk about in the news section. So Carl from Wolves wanted to know which musical biopic would we like to see? Interesting. And this is why I asked it off the top of my head yeah, because thanks. you can see immediately yeah. the I'm podcast stuck. magic beginning to happen. Yeah, I think I think I would like to see the Eddie Vedder story, and I think they should. Call it. I like Eddie Vedder. Yeah, so do I. I love Pearl Jam, but I uh, well, I did many years ago. What would ago. it be called? We've just discussed that. It would be called <laughs> Would he be played by the Swedish chef? <laughs> yes. He might have that. He the Swedish that. chef is Eddie Vedder. <laughs> 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 So anyway, to get back to the question, <laughs> right, the one that came to mind, actually, is Robert Johnson, who oh. technically already has a biopic on Netflix at the moment. Okay. Um, but he's the guy who, in American songwriting yes. myth, yes. sold his soul at the crossroads. Yes. To the devil. Hang on. In order... Hang on. No, this is a genuine this thing. This is it's an not... episode of Supernatural. It I've seen it. It is an episode of Supernatural. <laughs> I see where you're going. But he's also, of course, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's playing guitarist, right? Yes. But so, he's wearing a top kind of, in Over the World yeah. now. And obviously in Supernatural, not so much. Yeah, but, but anyway, Robert Johnson was this incredible guitarist and he was so good they thought he genuinely had sold his soul to the devil for his talent and died very young and there might be a story there. You have just described the film Crossroads starring Ralph Macchio. Oh, hang on, uh, that, from that, the that is a film with Britney Spears and Anson Mount and it no, definitely no, no, no. doesn't involve There's the another devil. film called Crossroads starring Ralph Macchio. There's only about one A Crossroads. musician who sells his soul to the devil. It's not a Robert Johnson biopic. But it does exist. Uh, uh, there's no denying its existence. There's no denying that it is a thing that is out there. It certainly is. Um, I would also like to suggest Otis Redding. Because, okay. Because uh, he's, he's sitting favorite. on the dock of the bay. He is sitting on the dock of the bay. Is that what you would call it? I don't know what I would call it. Maybe these arms of mine. I think it should be quite... His career was quite compressed. His first lineup of songs included these arms of mine, if memory serves. Mm. So he just came in with this incredible songbook and was a massive hit and then died at 26. 26. 26. So, like, I, I would kind of try and make it a little bit thoughtful and not worry about the whole sprawl of someone's life in the way that these Rocketmans and Bohemian Rhapsodies and stuff have had to do. And, you know, I would kind of try and keep it quite contained and, and look at the guy himself. I think that'd be really interesting. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to add a wrinkle to Carl from Wolves' question, which is not only when you're coming up with the biopic, I okay. want you to say what it's going to be called, but in the style of Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman, which are named after two very popular songs from oh, that artist's repertoire. Okay, So your Eddie Fetter, what is that? Is, is it called Alive? No, no, that wouldn't be good. That's uh, good. It's no, good. It's he's not dead. Uh, I think you is he? call he's it... Not dead. Uh, hey, Foxy, my fandal mama, that's me. <laughs> I think that would be that would be probably what I'd call it. Wow. wow. From two tickets for, hey, what? Foxy, my fandal mama. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Surely it's Foxy Mop Handle Mama. I mean, it could be, yeah. Given, what's yeah. Muff Handle? I don't know. That's how I'd always pronounce it, but thinking about it, yes, that makes more sense. Mop Handle. Hey, do you know what? I might have even made this up. Let me you know. go to like a hardware store and go, can I, like, can I have three Muff Handles, please? What? Yeah, Four candles. Here we go. Hey, Foxy Mop Handle Mama. Yeah, it is. It's, you're almost certainly right. But M-O-P-H, I just thought it was Moth. <laughs> like Grand Moth. Like Grand Moth. Handle yeah. mama. Oh my god. You're like you know, like he worked on the death lunatic. Star. Why? No, and no, that's fine. It's a terrible song. I really wouldn't advise it. It's not a good song. No, it's not. What's wrong with Alive? 
It's a bit first base, isn't it? Also, you just don't expect Eddie Vedder to start eating stone gossard at one point, you know. <laughs> Not in a sex way, in a cannibalism way. <laughs> no, I get it. It's a reference to the film, Alive. Thank yeah, you. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, Jeremy would be confusing. Yeah, because his name's not Jeremy. It'd be a yeah. Jeremy Renner biopic, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, obviously, well, I think that's the one we're all waiting for. Um, <laughs> On tenterhooks. <laughs> so, okay. Anybody else? I mean, I oh. just I just saw recently Amazing Grace, the Aretha Franklin movie, and I would watch a movie all about her. I enjoyed that film. It's great, isn't it? Even though, like, nothing happens. Like, it's just a recording yeah. of some gospel music. It, yeah, basically, you're, you're just going along to watch someone's playlist. But yeah. that's, that's totally fine. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Concert yeah. films are, are, are good for me. Jimbo, do you have anyone at all, apart from Eddie Vedder, or is, is that the breadth of your musical the, knowledge? The length and breadth of my musical knowledge sort of dwells around the Seattle grunge scene. So I'd probably is, see a Chris Cornell biopic called Super Unknown or something. We've been to see um, precisely one one gig together yeah Audio I, Slave which was Audio Slave mm. and Helen you and I went to see the Divine Comedy we did. a few years oh ago my as well. god no, we how did you not invite me uh, because you were outside picketing it <laughs> yeah I bet I was oh. <laughs> you were furious that it was even happening uh, it was in an old church wasn't it it was yeah, yeah. the one down on Piccadilly yeah, yeah, it doesn't shock me uh, I think there is scope for a massive three part I mean, there's been so many movies made about the Beatles, mm-hmm. but their careers together and their, their, you know, that eight year period where they were recording albums and they changed the world. That is really ripe. There's so much stuff that goes on there. You know, the way that John Lennon kind of lost a plot towards the end of the Beatles. Do you see possibly apocryphal tale where he was so out of it on certain substances uh, that he developed a, a Jesus complex and he convened a meeting of the Beatles to tell him that he was, in fact, Jesus Christ. I want to see that in a movie. <laughs> That's what I want to see. So Let I think be, I think there's room for a three-part series, oh, a three a trilogy of a Beatles, Beatles movies. Trilogy. That would be great. And okay. then the last one, you know, you can't call it Let It Be because there's already a, a Beatles film called Let It Be. But you know, the end. You could call it the end, and then there'd be two other ones in there as well. I mean, I think there's a Madonna movie in the works, isn't there? Uh, possibly. I'm yeah. Kind of surprised there hasn't been a Patti Smith story of some sort is there a great story in Patti Smith because I think something like I'm a huge R.E.M. fan I'm yeah. not sure there's a film in there hmm. I'm not sure that they have you know Elton John Freddie Mercury they have the ups and the downs the rises and the falls are we the getting drugs, a bit bored the of the oh look he became addicted to whatever and then he got I over love, it I mean yeah. like Robert genuinely Walk Hard was like <laughs> eight years ago and we're still making the same story. Yeah, why make a first base by pit when you could do Cotton Eye Joe, the story of rednecks, you know, which is the story I think we're all crying out for. No one else want to see Robert Palmer biopic and we see how he gets addicted to love? Nobody? (laughs) No. No? Well, it starts with a, it starts with at a party, someone offers him some love, he takes the love, (laughs) they give it to him for free, but when he comes back, it costs. Do you know what would be great? It's a gateway love. Uh, Sinatra. Sinatra? Sinatra. Didn't they try? It wasn't, um, Mm. but it was more of um, a Dean Martin biopic. The long-lost Scorsese project, which had Tom Hanks yeah. playing Dean Martin and, oh God, I can't even remember who was playing Sinatra, but I think Ray Liotta was attached as well at one point. So that was something that... He could have been, I, what, Peter Lawford or somebody? Yeah, he yeah, actually, he might have been Sinatra. Liotta might really? have been Sinatra. Huh. Yeah. Maybe. That. I don't okay. see it either, but I don't see Tom Hanks as Dean Martin. Well, that's true. Um, but uh, no, I don't know. I just think there's a story there with all the sort of, you know, alleged mafia ties and... and alleged, yeah. Alleged. <laughs> alleged. <laughs> Yeah. And the the Vegas years and the movies. And I just think he's a fascinating guy. I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, rather than just a little bit in The Godfather with a thinly veiled Very, Johnny yeah, Fontaine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for, for example, Pink Floyd, right? So Pink Floyd have, again, a fascinating story because there's so much infighting that goes on in Pink Floyd. Right. And you start off with, you know, Sid Barrett, who is who is the leader of the band, and it burns himself out on drugs so quickly, mm-hmm. and then the band takes over, and it's and then there's this massive tussle for power between Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore, 
to the point where, you know, Roger Waters becomes the leader of the band and starts firing people just liberally, willy-nilly, and there's all sorts of stuff going on there. That would be an interesting film for me. Surely if you want in-band drama, you either go for ABBA or Fleetwood Mac. Fleet, well, yes, and you'd culminate presumably Fleetwood Mac with the um, the Brits, right? <laughs> Mick Fleetwood and Sam Fox presenting the Brits. That's, I mean, that, I think that's the moment everybody remembers. That's the moment everyone remembers. But even now, Fleetwood Mac, there's drama, right? Yeah, they, they massive just, drama. They just fired Lindsay Buckingham from the band and after many, many years. But, you know, I'm sure there are loads and loads of bands that have loads of great stories as well. Mm. But uh, but if you want to have something on the on the level of a, a Rocket Man or a, or a Bohemian Rhapsody, you need to have Mm. stuff that people have heard of so you know my, my answers are really boring but it's the Beatles Pink Floyd and Elvis because again I don't know that there's been a great Elvis movie there's... Elvis Nixon <laughs> the definitive I work. really don't know that there's been a great Elvis movie <laughs> and I think there's potential out there for. Well, also really we saw his, his origin story kind of pretty well encapsulated in Forrest Gump so I feel like that really did it I mean uh, I do think though that there's a danger with all this now we're going to get on in the news section to the new we Boy are. George biopic that's, that's our promise work. We've, we've mentioned it twice if we, we don't have. if we don't talk about it now something's wrong but I just like I feel like they're getting a bit it's this whole nostalgia thing that I keep banging on about. It's this whole, the 80s were the greatest era. We must keep retelling those stories until we all fall down dead. You know, I'm getting a little bit to the point of being like, is there nothing else? You're right. I think any celebration of the 80s really is dreadful and should be avoided at all costs. I agree. Hmm. Our Meanwhile, esteemed... Helen's Burt, the greatest movie of the 80s, is still available <laughs> in paperback. And our esteemed colleague, Nick Dissemblian, has a book coming out on June 6th. It's called Jeez, Wild and Crazy Guys. guys. And I can never remember the subtitle, but it's uh, about... How that sort of SNL crew, so Belushi and mm. Aykroyd and, and Chase and Martin, Eddie Murphy, Murphy. crucially, yeah, Eddie yeah. Murphy, and all all those guys changed the face of, of Hollywood comedy mm. forever. It is forever. nuts, though. Like yeah, the stories around those guys are incredible. They're larger than life. The stuff they got up to, you think. I wonder how that would play out in the modern, you know, social media age. That's a very, very good point. Uh, but anyway, enough shilling mm. for Helen and Nick's books because that is it. I think we've answered Carl from Wolves' question to everybody's satisfaction. Let's hope. Because we could just start listing people. Um, oh, well, Randy Newman. The biopic of Randy yeah, Newman. Yeah, why not? You've got a friend in me. Yeah. The poster, Taron Edgerton is Randy. Well, that would certainly sell some tickets. Yeah? You think? No? If you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast as Carl from Wolves did to his satisfaction. You can get in touch with us, find number methods. We're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. You can use the hashtag Emperor Podcast or chances are we won't see it. You can Facebook us where we're Empire Magazine or you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Right, shall we have a guest? Hurrah. Let's have a guest. This week sees the release, in fact it's already out, of Godzilla King of the Monsters, a sequel to Gareth Edwards' 2014 Godzilla, just in case you were wondering. And it has an all-star cast, Godzilla, Ghidorah, Mothra, Rodan, Rodan, he's in it as well. Amazing. How did they get them all? I mean, they just threw money at the problem, I guess. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Imagine the size of the trailers. It also has some humans in it as well, the likes of Millie Bobby Brown and Fiora Farmiga and the legendary... Charles Dance. Now, yes. You will have seen him, of course, in movies like The Golden Child. Sado Numspa. <laughs> Alien 3. Yes. Last Action Hero. Ooh. And most recently, I believe he can be found on the televisual drama The Game of the Thrones. Yes, we may have covered that. On your little on podcast. On our little podcast, yeah. yes. Mm. 
He's also in Godzilla King of the Monsters, and so we sent along Ben Travis, the silent assassin, to have a chat with Charles Dance about the movie, his career, and a great many things. Do please enjoy. Welcome to the Empire podcast, Charles Dance. Thank you. What a nice surprise it is when you go and see a big creature feature, and then... Charles Dance turns up in a monster movie. <laughs> well, that's a nice of you to say so. Thank you very much. Are, are you yes. a monster movie guy? Is that something that appeals to you as a, as a viewer? I, I, I was a monster movie guy, I reckon, when I was about 18 and 19. Mm. Uh, I've moved on a bit now. <laughs> but, you know, you'd have to be a pretty tough cookie not to be impressed by the, what's been created in mm. this film. Really, I mean, what we can do now with CGI, you know, and digital enhancement is mind-boggling, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you think that when Godzilla was first made, and in fact, did you know that this is the 35th? 35, that's a hell of a legacy. 35, it's a hell of a mm. legacy. But when it was first done, you know, it's kind of guys in rubber suits mm. being photographed from extraordinary angles. But now... I act to a pink balloon that is tethered some 30 feet up in the air Mm -hmm. and try to look convincingly terrified when I'm looking at this pink balloon because when eventually you see the thing put together and you see what I've had in my mind, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty terrifying thing, actually. So um, which monster movies made an impression on you then when you were into that sort of stuff? Do you remember seeing some of the older... Well, yes, I can remember... A film, I think it was called The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I saw that at Saturday Morning Pictures. Mm-hmm. You know what Saturday Morning Pictures was? I don't know. This is in the days when if you had a television, if you were lucky enough to have a television, there were probably two channels mm-hmm. on it. Um, Saturday Morning Pictures, your local Odeon, ABC, Gaumont, whatever... Between, I think, 10 in the morning and 12.30, it was Saturday morning pictures for children and young teens, basically. Mm -hmm. And there'd be a feature, there'd be a comedy, Mm -hmm. and there'd be some ads. And there would also be, I mean, there'd be songs as well. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics of the song would be on the screen with a little ping-pong ball going (laughs) on, so it would help you read it. So you'd get that off to a good start. Mm -hmm. Then there'd be maybe a cartoon, then the feature, or the feature and a comedy. I can remember I first saw Laurel and Hardy films Ah, at Saturday Morning Pictures. Mm -hmm. And also, when you got just a little bit older... Then the beginnings of courtship would be going on right. in the background. And then a man would come along with a torch and say, hey, pack that up, stop that. Yeah, it was great, Saturday morning pictures. So were you there taking dates to see Creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. And so in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, you're uh, Jonah Allen, you're collecting monster DNA, you're a sort of bioterrorist in a way. And you're you're working with Vera Farmiga, who she is an amazing screen presence. Um, yeah, she what was it like working with her? What can you tell me about that? Vera's terrific. I've never met her before. Mm. She's wonderful. She's a hoot. And we both have, I mean, there's something happened. I mean, did you say I can swear on this? Yes, absolutely. All oh, right, okay. There is a machine that basically she has kind of invented that will actually send out radio waves that will influence the behavior of these creatures and it's called the orca so we're talking about you know the orca turn the orca on get the orca going and there was a point where she says to me but what about the orca to which in the script it's you know never mind the orca we've moved on from there 
And I just thought, you know, I've done it. I said, well, fuck the orca. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and also the orca became Majorca. <laughs> Are we going to go to Majorca? There's the orca. Um, so we had a lot of fun. Sadly, I don't think yeah. the uh, the fuck the orca moment quite made it into the final cut. No, no, but it hopefully, hasn't. maybe we'll see it on the DVD. Yeah. You never know. But I had some T-shirts printed for the crew, Did just you? being some fuck the orca. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your character gets a sort of an ice cold entrance as well. Uh, yeah, you kind of swagger in and shoot a bunch of people and do yeah. you do you relish that kind of moment when you see it in the script you think ah that's kind of that's that's what yeah. i wanted to yeah it's nice to have a good entrance mm-hmm. and a good ending if you know i mean i've died in so many things that mm. i've done not least in game of thrones recently yes. you know died on the toilet shot <laughs> by my ungrateful son after all i'd done for him mm-hmm. you, know? you know villains tend to be a bit more fun yeah. than good guys, really, because you get the opportunity to say and do things to people that you've perhaps thought about doing, but, you know, really wouldn't ever do. Yeah, I mean, you've got so many iconic lines. You think of something like Last Action Hero, uh, if God was a villain, he'd be me, or you call someone a, a stupid spaghetti slurping cretin at one point. Do those lines stay with you? Do they stay in your head, those well, really delicious? Yeah, those two especially. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. Yes, indeed. I've done a couple of fan conventions, you mm. know, and people come up and you know, they want your signature on a photograph, but they remember, like, there's a line they remember from Game of Thrones is the Lannisters always pay their debts. I've written that out so many times, <laughs> I go, I possibly forget it. Yeah. 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 Such an I ominous. mean, you know, if the parts are well written, then they are great fun to play, of course. And there's a lot of love in the Empire office for um, Sardo Numspa from The Golden Child. <laughs> Which are your favourite villain roles in this kind of amazing roster that you've had over the years? I quite like Benedict in Last mm. Action Hero because, you know, I had a whole series of contact lenses, mm. whole eye to they, they, they were not the most comfortable things <laughs> to wear. But, you know, he was fun to play. What are your memories of, of working with Arnie <clears throat> on that, of Arnie in his kind of prime? What was it like facing off against him? Oh, Arnold was great. He's, he's an absolute charmer. And I can remember sitting in the makeup trailer um, with F. Murray Abraham. Mm. And we were having a rather pompous conversation, the two of us, about art films, European mm-hmm. art films, you know, and... And Arnie came in and he said, you know, you need the money you make from my movies to make your art films. <laughs> he said, yeah, you're absolutely right, Arnold. And he came out with this fantastic line. He said, I make films for the polyester people. <laughs> the polyester people. What, what do you think he meant by that? I think he meant I make films for the big mm. general public not the kind of little select bunch of people who go to art house films, mm. no. And do you like mixing up between that, between the big blockbusters and the yeah. smaller projects? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I did a very small film with Ben Wheatley. Now, I was going to bring that up, yeah. Well, there, absolutely. you see, now, Ben, I think he's the enfant terrible of British cinema, yeah, he, actually. Mm-hmm. He's an extraordinary guy. He's a film animal. Mm-hmm. And we shot that film in 10 days, we lived and worked in the same place. Mm-hmm. Was know. it in the house that the film is set? Yeah, in? you know, if you remember, it's about a, you know, a family reunion. Mm. They all get together for New Year, and, of course, you know, family grievances get aired. Ben and his producer found this location that was absolutely right for the story of the film. Mm-hmm. It had sufficient rooms to accommodate everybody. So, you know, we, we were... We, 
get up in the morning, we'd assemble at 10 o'clock, and then we work sometimes till 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Ben then would go to his room and start cutting what had been yeah. shot that day. So he's then working until about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. But there he is, ready and willing to go. And it, it's like, kind of like the SAS of filmmaking, really. <laughs> two camera operators all the time, yeah. and it's all on the shoulder. They're fighting for space with boom swingers. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing what you can do with a small crew, mm -hmm. the speed at which you can do it, because filmmaking now, whether it's a huge budget like Godzilla or it's something like Ben's film, nevertheless, it doesn't matter what size the budget is, schedules seem to get tighter. Mm -hmm. Budgets are constrained, so every penny you it's watched how it's spent. And... You know, on Ben's film, I didn't, can't remember the size of the crew, but um, it was it was minute compared mm. to the size of the crew on Godzilla. But there's a kind of energy that that creates. I wouldn't like to do it too much of the time. Yeah. Um, Sounds intense. Because obviously there are things you can't spend too much time on. You know? mm. I mean, I think that the two great arts in filmmaking are cinematography and editing. Mm. And there are some wonderful cinematographers around who just create the most fantastic pictures. Mm -hmm. But they need time to do that, you know. And then what happens in the cutting room? I mean, it's a great art, film editing. So you have to sacrifice a few things. And you have mm -hmm. to accept, you have to bring your standards down. Not too much. But people now are getting, cinematographers are getting used to having to work faster. Mm -hmm. There was a time when, you know, if you were back in the days of David Lean, you know, when he's making Ryan's Daughter, they would actually wait for weeks for the right cloud formation yeah. or something. Can't do that anymore. Just to go back to Colin Burstead. Yeah, sorry. Probably. So that was one of my favourite films from last year. And there's a moment in that that I really love around your character. You play Bertie. Yes. Um, and you're preparing in a room to, to give this sort of controversial speech and yes. you're putting makeup on and you're putting yes. earrings on and there's a sense that that is going to be a, a big reveal that that's what you're wearing and actually when it comes to it that's not a big deal for no. the family no. I just thought that was such an interesting note how did you respond to, to Bertie and to scenes like that it was actually my suggestion I have to say because when Ben first came to me with the script, the character was, I can't remember, Auntie Millie or something, mm -hmm. you know. And he said, oh, I'm going to change Auntie Millie. We're going to make Auntie Millie Uncle Bertie. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it just came to me. I said, well, don't lose Auntie Millie completely. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I think Bertie's cross-dresser. Right. I think he's transvestite. Mm -hmm. I think his wife died a few years ago. And um, he was utterly devoted to her. And you know, he wears clothes or clothes similar to the clothes that she wore. And he's been doing it for so long that the family, the rest of the family, have just accepted this is Uncle Bertie. Yeah. So nobody is sniggering and pointing and making cruel remarks about him. Nor does he... he he's not at all camp. He's, he just prefers to wear women's clothes. Yeah. Like Eddie Izzard. I think it's, it's lovely because so much of that film is about the conflict of the family. And actually that is something that it's just totally accepted and it's not a point of conflict in the film, which I think is really no. refreshing. Good. Um, <laughs> and so let's get on to Game of Thrones. Yeah. Tywin Lannister, such an iconic character, such an incredible character. Do you still think about him? Obviously, it's a few years since, um, mm. since you left mm. the show. Is he still in your head somewhere? Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's, you know, HBO and Sky 
have been very clever with that, you know. Mm. I mean, it is the most successful television series ever made. Yeah. And before the screening of each subsequent season, they rerun the season before, Mm. and up to the final season for Game of Thrones, if you remember, I mean, you turn on the television, they're running the whole thing again. Yeah. From season one, episode one, right the way through. Mm -hmm. And to be part of that, um, it's fantastic. Of course it is, you know, um, because in this business, it swings and roundabouts. You can be flavor of the month one month and absolutely nothing the following. And mm. my career, such as it is, is based on me preferring to work than not work. Mm. And, you know, um, there are times where maybe I could have been a bit more choosy, but I just like working. Yeah. You know, I'm very lucky to do a job that I love. And time in Lannister came along. None of us had any idea that it would be as hugely successful as it has been. But David and Dan, who were the creators of mm-hmm. the adaptation from George R. R. Martin's books, do you know what RR stands for? I don't. I've no, never looked it up. Neither do I. I never <laughs> found out. But it's the quality of the writing mm. of that series is largely responsible for its success. That and the fact that HBO choose to spend money in the right way. Were you invested in that story as a as a viewer as well as a participant? Did you watch the final season? Did you watch yeah. the show after you continued? Yeah. What, how do you feel about where your your children, Jamie, Cersei and Tyrion all ended up? How how did you feel about their conclusion as their as their on-screen father? Yeah, I I just well, I mean for, for me personally rather mm. than Tywin Lannister, you know, I mean Tyrion is a great fantastic character mm-hmm. and Peter Dinklage is a brilliant actor. I mean, he's wonderful and the sweetest of men. Right. I used to spend a lot of time apologising to Peter because as Tywin Lannister, I said the most awful things to him, <laughs> you know. And I've worked with Lena Headey. She's played my daughter, I think, three times now. Wow. I'd never met Jamie before, Nikolai, I should say. And we're, I mean, quite a dysfunctional family. Say the least, <laughs> absolutely. But that series contained so many characters that audiences were keen to follow. I mean, there were such an array of characters that there's something for everybody, basically. You know, if you, if you, if you like Tywin Lannister, there he is. You can, you can hate him, but you love hating him, yeah. you know. And there's Daenerys, you know, and then there's that awful, what, what was his name? He really, he went round, you know, Ramsay Bolton. Yes, oh, Ramsay yes. Bolton. Now, there's a what villain a horrible for you. Guy. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> what a deeply unpleasant character. Mm. And, you know, and poor little Alfie, having bits of him cut off. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm really, it was great. I loved it. Mm. Loved it. And we got to the finale. And personally, I was confused. Okay. I thought, wow, that's how you've decided to end this. Because there was this enormous build-up and there yeah. was this battle, the mother of all battles, even. I mean, it was superseded the Battle of the Bastards, really. Um, and that was as a result, I believe, of a straight-through 35-night night shoot. Mm-hmm. The crew and the cast were on their knees after mm-hmm. that. That was the penultimate episode. So then we get to the finale. It was odd. It was a strange ending. Mm. How did you feel about Jamie and Cersei? Because they were so tied up with everything else going on in the season. I thought that was pretty good, actually, to mm. bring them together. 
love conquers all. I mean, it's a very strange love, you know, <laughs> an incestuous relationship, you know, brother and sister. But um, there was an attempt to redeem Jamie, mm-hmm. which never wholly succeeded. And I guess as a character, he thought he was never going to succeed. So go back to sister, mm. basically. Well, really appreciate it. Thanks for Not coming on the all. show. Charles Pleasure. Dance. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Okay, that was Charles Dance, and we will be reviewing Godzilla, King of the Monsters later in the show. Okay, so let's now talk about movie news. Helen. Hi. What's been happening? I mean, there hasn't been a huge amount of movie news this week, which no, probably means something's going to drop as Memorial soon Day. as we leave this uh, yeah, this, this recording. Uh, there was, however, a trailer for The Goldfinch, which is exciting for those fans of literary fiction out there, uh, both of you. And this is the adaptation of the Donna Tartt novel it's you know it is a good doorstop as well as being a very good book so this is about uh, a small boy who loses his mother when there's a bombing at a museum and it changes the course of his life and he gets sent on this kind of he get he ends up living with various different sort of hosts for the next few years while he's growing up while he's finishing growing up and still kind of can't quite obviously let go of this tragedy it's um from the guy who made Brooklyn, John Crowley, mm. so really good director. Mm-hmm. Um, Ansel Elgort plays the older Theo. Um, Oakes Fegley is the is the young Theo, and it's got You're really good cast. These names up. I am actually. It's got really good cast around him. Nicole Kidman's in there. Jeffrey Wright, Luke Wilson, and Iron Barnard, Finn Wolfhart, Sarah Paulson. Great, great people. The book is great, but like I say, it's so huge and it's so kind of internal. And I hope that they can translate that. But on the basis of this trailer, they're doing a pretty good job. So yeah, I'm intrigued to see more. I have a story that I was saving for the other podcast because it's TV related, but I think you will appreciate it more. Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing a <laughs> non, non-animated non sequel to Kindergarten Cop. This is Superhero Kindergarten. It is done in collaboration with the late, great Stan Lee. Uh, and it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice as Arnold Armstrong, a former superhero called Captain Courage, who's kind of in semi-retirement and has become a gym teacher. This doesn't seem like a sequel to No, it has Cop. nothing to do with Kindergarten Cop, except he's teaching... And it's called Kindergarten. There's yeah. a kindergarten in so the title? So he's teaching kindergarten, kind of. All right, okay, so it's not a sequel to Kindergarten. No, in, in no way, except, you know, he'll okay. probably be... You so know, you, you, were, you were knowingly misleading the listeners. I was the taking creative <gasps> license, yes. But, you but it's not as if... Bit. I mean, they literally are calling it Superhero Kindergarten. Yeah, but you haven't okay. got to the best bit. Go on. Which is that... Reveal so it. Basically, Captain Courage lost his powers fighting against Dr. Superior, his <laughs> arch nemesis, but... That's explo- my superhero name. Yeah, well, you're Dr. Sinister, surely. Then an explosion of superpowered particles rains down and turns all the five-year-olds into superheroes. How cute is that? <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait to see it. Uh, so there are rumours that Disney and Lucasfilm have hired Leita Caligridis, who is mm. an executive producer on Avatar and co-writer of Shutter Island and a leader battle angel, to adapt Knights of the Old Republic as a movie. Now, uh, Knights of the Old Republic is a video game, Star Wars video game, one I've never played, but I, I have m- imagine it you have many times. Mm. Yes, and even it, though you probably hate it, but you played it anyway. No, it's great. It's really, oh, it's really good. good okay. Anyway, the whole thing hinges around a plot twist where you are playing a character and it turns out that the character you are playing is the villain. What? Uh, what? The, the villain with amnesia, Darth Revan. Uh, no! But it, it's an interesting, so it takes place in the world, uh, it's kind of like pre the modern Republic and the Sith are kind of like a race of, for all intents and purposes, stormtroopers in this. Like a, They're like a, the Sith race and there are lots of dark Jedis wandering around and lots of normal Jedis and classes of Jedis and it's... Uh, it's a really interesting world because it's one that they haven't explored before. Weirdly, I asked Kathy Kennedy about this at Star Wars Celebration and she did say it was something they were pootling around. 
because it people, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense because it's 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 an area of Star Wars they haven't explored. Yeah. So they're not going to overlap any existing canon. Exactly, and it's far enough away from the existing canon that they can actually yeah. so show some creativity and and yeah. cut loose a little bit, Absolutely. which I think is what that world needs right now. And which is what's great about the West, what they're doing with Star Trek now as well, that they're mm. able to kind of get out of the kind of box they put themselves in. But um, I think what works better about this is you go too far into the future in the Star Wars universe, I feel like maybe the trappings of what make it Star Wars no longer exist, you know, which is like the Empire and all these various things. I think you go back into the past and there's lots of interesting things you can do, which are kind of early iterations of the stuff that you grow to know and love. So, yeah, no, I'm very interested to see what they do with this. It will be, uh, it'll be fun. Whether they'll hook it on that that plot twist, I have no idea. Here's my thing, because we know that they've announced these next three Star Wars movies. Mm. I think they, they're going to hold more in their back pocket, and I think they are going to introduce some more at, at some point. Because certainly the next Star Wars movie they've confirmed will be the D.B. Weiss and David Benioff yep. film, or the beginning of their trilogy. Ryan Johnson's still yeah. knocking around yep. on a trilogy as far as we know. You know. That may have been silently and they shelved. Have other live-action projects aimed yep. for Disney+, Plus in addition to The Mandalorian. So. Yeah. So if this is a movie... This surely isn't the Weiss Benioff one, right? I mean, this might be um, something else. Unless it is. I mean, I mean unless I, it is. I don't know. The, the the Weiss Benioff thing, I mean, they've got to be a little bit worried about that right now because they're kind of, there's a whole section of the internet who are vastly against those guys yeah, right now. Yeah, but they are also dicks, these people. I agree. Um, but I, that didn't I, stop them being dicks about The Last Jedi That as is well. true. That is true. But I, I think, like, you know, regardless of what anyone thinks of the last few episodes of, of Game of Thrones, you can't take away from the fact that in, in a series of more than 80 episodes, they wrote the bulk of them and did an exceptional job. So even if, and I'm not even saying they did because I don't think they did, even if they, you know, they didn't drop the ball, they might have fumbled it ever so slightly in the final season. What they did was incredible. The thing is, fandom is toxic and you cannot please these people. To wit, I, I, I think this is a, uh, something that we're going to get onto later in this particular podcast when we start talking about reviews. We are? Yeah. Okay, cool. So the long in development... Taika Waititi movie, Bubbles, which was about Michael Jackson's chimp and was going to be stop-motion animated and was going to be produced <laughs> in association with Netflix, now seems to not be happening. That Taika Waititi Why has is left that, the, Chris? I well, can't imagine. Taika Waititi has left the project, ostensibly because Akira, his live-action adaptation of Akira, which will feature Asian actors in the lead roles, which is fantastic, that has been dated for 2021. That's going to take up all his attention but you'd also have to imagine that a movie <laughs> that is somewhat even about in Michael Jackson's orbit is a movie that's going to bring with us some controversy in the light of recent documentaries yeah. and further allegations about him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but Akira is happening. It's been dated for 2021, which mm. is exciting. And I've also been watching What We Do in the Shadows, the, the TV show. Yeah, so it's good, isn't that's, it? That's, that's a lot funny. Of fun. yeah. mm. Even I find it funny. Wow. Oh, uh, now I'm reconsidering. <laughs> it, it must be unfunny. Mm. It must be terrible. Okay, so what else has been happening in the world of movie news? I'll tell you what's been happening in the world of movie news. Zack uh, Snyder's Army of the Dead, which post-Avengers Endgame is possibly the movie that is keeping me alive, <laughs> is, um, <laughs> is casting up. Big time casting up. So this is, in case people don't know what this is, this is Zack Snyder returning to zombies and just going up 
absolutely nutso in a, and what I hope is going to be a glorious, glorious way. It is a zombie flick, but it's also a heist movie. So a zombie outbreak has ravaged the world and cities are now being walled off. And with the zombies Las, inside, with right? the zombies, some, right. some of them with the zombies inside, I'm guessing. And Las Vegas is one of those cities. It's been walled off to keep the zombies in. It's, been a, it's a quarantined zone. Um, Dave Bautista is a badass whose daughter who will now be played by Ella Purnell, is trapped in the quarantine zone. So Dave Bautista assembles a team of badass mercenaries to go in to rescue her from all the zombies. While they're there, because there's billions of dollars of cash just lying around in the casinos, they decide to pull off a bunch of heists while they're doing it. So I'm calling it greatest movie ever made. (laughs) And uh, he's cast it up this week. So obviously... um, so it's kind of Zombies 11. What Zombies 11. Oh my God. I cannot wait for this movie. <laughs> so it's Ella Purnell and she's joined the cast this week. Theo Rossi, Anna Della Reguera and Huma Qureshi have all signed on to join the cast as well. Filming will start in July and it's just the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Well, at least you're being you I know, don't know mature and considerate <laughs> about it. I think that's really important. Zombies! Um, heists! A zombie heist. Will Just, it officially tie into the MCU? Because I have a theory that all of Dave Bautista's films are <laughs> secretly connected to the MCU. Because we know that Final Score is because it features Sokovia, terrorists from Sokovia. <laughs> so it is officially canon <laughs> and part of the MCU. So I think this will be as well. What about ones in which he dies? Yeah, all of them. Uh, huh. how, how well, he's can... not Drax, is he? He's like he's just he's a he's a different Bautista. Huh. Okay, sure. So sure, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is in yeah, the yeah. Bushwick is in yeah, the yeah all of them. Okay. WrestleMania wow. 20. Well, actually, I don't even know if it's 20. Uh, what WrestleMania are we on at the moment? It's got to be 40 something, hasn't it? Yeah, you're I don't asking know. the wrong person. I Am I? I don't, you're not I don't a big wrestling know. fan. No, I think, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but football's my bag. Uh, that's so. true. Because mm. Dave Bautista retired from professional wrestling at a WrestleMania this year. I just don't know which number it was. Okay, here's a more interesting story Sonic the Hedgehog has now been pushed back. Shock, horror, dismay. Uh, I mean, due fine. to the outcry over the fact that it looks like some weird genetic island of Dr. Moreau freak show, uh, they have that's <laughs> so weird. an official VFX term, in case you're wondering. They've pushed it back till 2020. It will now come out on <laughs> Valentine's Day 2020, if you want well, to. Well, nothing get your says Sonic I love on. you like a blue hedgehog. Absolutely. Mm. A freaky blue, or presumably a less freaky blue hedgehog. Let's that's hope. that's let's what hope. they're going to be doing. There's a bit of news this week about the old guard, which <gasps> is kind of a cool concept. Um, no. So this is being directed by Gina Prince-Blythewood. It already stars Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane from Beale Street. So it's about a small group of soldiers who are all inexplicably immortal. And they've just been working as mercenaries because why would you not? Because nothing's yeah. going to kill you. It's cool. Theron is their leader and they have this, this little gang. Mm-hmm. But the news this week was that Hot Jafar uh, from Aladdin, <laughs> aka Marwan Kenzari. Hot Jafar. That's, look, that's not me. That's I the internet. can't help but feel you're objectifying the Grand Vizier. I'm not. It's the internet. Uh-huh. Anyway, Jafar, if you prefer. Jafar. Jafar. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Baby, um, about one second. My God, don't objectify him, guys. Jeez. Uh, Marwan Kenzari is signing up to the cast. So that's kind of exciting. That's going to be on Netflix. As indeed are all things. <laughs> Ultimately, all true. things will be on Netflix. All things uh, lead to Netflix. Something that isn't going to be on Netflix, and which also involves a kind of paramilitary group of a kind, maybe, you want to stretch it that way, is the Suicide Squad, which oh. this week uh, added an old, familiar face to the cast, and is Joel Kinnaman. Yeah. He's back. As Joel Rick Kinnaman Flag. is back as... You knew who he played. I just wrote well about him recently. Well done. 
Rick Flag. Rick Flag. Who can forget Rick Flag? Who can forget Jason Kinnaman as Ralph Flag? <laughs> Did he not die in Suicide Squad? It's very hard to tell. Uh, I don't remember watching don't the film again. Believe I believe he did. Feel like. No, didn't he end up reunited with his girlfriend no. June Moon? June Moon. Are you, no, he's a fine. No, I'm not kidding. This is June Moon. He is. Yeah, he's the leader of the Suicide Squad. Mm. Uh, but the fact that he's coming back, the fact that Jai Courtney is coming back as Captain Boomerang, the fact that Viola Davis is back as Amanda Waller. Why do I know these names? I think the film was terrible. But anyway, I know them. And uh, that Margot Robbie is rumoured to come back as, as Harley Quinn. So... Because we were told this was a reboot. Yeah, that's right. And now they're bringing in all the old characters. I'm wondering if they're going to bring in a whole bunch of the old characters and dirty dozen them very, very quickly and just maybe go, all bets like are off. baby soft reboot. Like maybe yeah. it's the softest of soft reboots. It would have to be. You know, you know, it's exactly the same cast and exactly the same plots, except it's different. Well, it has different people in it. Obviously, it has Idris Elba. He's on board as well. It has David Das Malkian. But it wouldn't surprise me if this was going down the route, like some, some horror films had to do this, where they bring back the cast from the last movie and then very, very quickly bump them off and you know the alien three gambit you know yeah. so uh. he might get he might get hicks and muted very very quickly old joel kinnaman and you know on twitter today i you know i was tweeting about old joel kinnaman mm-hmm. because you know i think it's important to have a nemesis in life and joel kinnaman is mine wow uh, really is he? he's he is mine. That did, you, like a did, did he beat you out for that role in the robocop remake he beat me off with the role of Robocop. Uh, and mainly, my antipathy towards Joel Kinnaman is entirely hinged around the Robocop is remake, it? which is so bad that, you know, just yeah. awful, 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 He's been awful. very good in things. I really liked him in the US remake of The Killing. Well, this he, is the thing. he was it's good a, in House of Cards. It's mm, important to have a discussion because I, I was talking on Twitter the day about how Joel Kinnaman and, you know, how I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan. But then a Joel Kinnaman fan wrote into us using the podcast at empireonline.com uh, email address earlier on and sent me pictures of Joel Kinnaman <laughs> partly to torture me uh, and said Dear Chris Hewitt pictures of Joel for the enjoyment of a self-indulgent critic of Empire and and I cannot stress this enough this is an air quotes opinion leader who enjoys shitting on a decent guy being cast for a movie for no good that's, reason That's ridiculous you are absolutely not an opinion leader I'm not an opinion leader <laughs> but I'm, I'm grateful that Joel took time out of his day to set up <laughs> A, an anonymous email account to send this. Uh, uh, let me see the pictures. This is, no, this is you've, you've hit a, on the. Uh, here's the thing about Joel Kinnaman, right? He's clearly a good guy. Someone's prepared to go to bat yeah. for him here. Yeah. Good guy, good actor, right? Look at him. He's mm. an attractive guy. He's a very handsome man. He's, He's extremely but I must, tall. I must bring him down. Yeah, but I feel like if you're going to pick a nemesis, you should maybe pick one who's not like a foot taller than you. And but here's the thing, Helen. Everyone's a foot taller than me. <laughs> you got to pick someone, right? You got to pick a nemesis in life. You got to pick someone whose ultimate failure in their career and life motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. Now, that person used to be Nigel Slater, the famous chef and food writer Nigel Slater, because he once beat me to a PPA Awards for Specialist Writer of the Year. Now, Nigel Slater does not know I've been working silently, (laughs) sinisterly against him and his career. Yeah. And How has that been going It's for not you? been going well, if no, I'm completely honest no. with you. He currently has a play on in the West End and he's yeah, won multiple one. awards yes, and yeah. several TV shows mm. and possibly even a film of his life. Mm. And Almost like he deserved to win that PPA award. I mean, you could say that. Yeah. And in fact, the judges did say that ultimately. But So I've moved on from Nigel Slater, right? Oh, it's so big of you. And I, yeah. I've... I've Taking my big tombola because I keep the tombola right from is the. Is this from the, the tombola Holland? This okay. is tombola Holland or tombola Hiddleston, if you wish. Sure. And I put a whole bunch of names in there of potential nemeses. Yeah. And I rolled it round, and Joel Kinnaman, all six foot eight of him, 
strapping guy. He could, you know, reduce my head to pulp. Mm. But this is the thing. I'm going to conduct this campaign silently and, and off the radar. And there, therefore, I, don't know whether I, I would bring his first. career down. But uh, Joel Kinnaman has been on the Pilot TV I know podcast. he's been on the Pilot TV <laughs> podcast. Here's he's talked about you a lot. Because here's the thing. I don't actually have any antipathy towards Joel Kinnaman. Oh, I just, you. I just thought it would be funny to pick someone and kind of publicly rail against him and then try and destroy their career and everything they've, they've worked for and loved. Yeah. And listen, Anonymous, I appreciate you going to bat for your friend. It's a lovely gesture. I do not genuinely have a, a, a beef with Joel Kinnaman. And you would like to stress that. I would like if to stress Mr. that. Mr. Kinnaman is listening. <laughs> Please don't kill Chris. <laughs> yeah. And if you do come to Empire Towers, Joel, we would love to have you in the podcast. It would be wonderful to have you in the podcast, in fact. But if you do come to Empire Towers, I should describe myself. Okay. So I'm tall, I'm bald. <laughs> Hang on. I have facial hair and I will probably be patronizing someone about something should you just choose to interrupt me at that point. So beat the shit out of that guy. Well, I think that worked out well. (laughs) As your lawyer, I can't see anything going wrong with any of that. Also, Joel Mm -hmm. Kinnaman, if you were listening, if you can sort me flights, accommodation and two tickets for the Champions League final tomorrow because you're listening to this on Friday, right? Then all's forgiven, man. Wow. Will you give Robocop four stars? Is that what you're saying? Hell Yes. One of the worst films I've seen in years. Four stars, Robocop, which we always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. Anyway, but there he is. There's Joel Kinnaman. Look at him. Look at him, Helen. Mm, I was. <laughs> I was. I have my Joel Kinnaman room at home. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, I don't. Wait. Is this your email address? <gasps> what? It's clearly someone else. All right. Okay. Is that it for movie news? I believe so. Uh, time now for our second guest this week, and he is... A fast-rising star uh, in front of and behind the camera. His name is Jim Cummings. And he's an American writer-producer of comedy turned director-editor-star-writer of this week's fantastic indie flick, Thunder Road, which is about a cop coming to terms with the loss of his mother and the various ramifications that has on his life. Uh, Jim Cummings is, I think, a real talent to keep an eye on. The film is excellent. He is excellent in it, especially when you consider that he had never acted before. He started in a short film that inspired this movie. He'd never really written before. He certainly hadn't really directed before. And uh, there's an incredible command and poise and confidence with the camera in this movie that marks it out. So when I saw the film, I jumped at the chance to get him here into this very studio to have a chat about how he made this movie for a shoestring budget, how he got Bruce Springsteen to sign away the rights to Thunder Road and all sorts of different shenanigans. Had a lot of fun with this one. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by, now let me get this right, the director, the writer, the star, composer? Anything else? Am I missing anything else, Jim Cummings? Uh, I, of I edited Road. the film as well. You I edited the film? I edited the film, yeah. Why did you stop there? <laughs> I was exhausted. Physical <laughs> exhaustion is why I stopped there. Um, yeah, no, I didn't need to. I have, I have a wonderful team who do everything else, and that's why. Screw I those guys. Yeah, get me on here. <laughs> How you feeling? Because you've been in, this is uh, now you've been in, in the UK for about a week, week ten days. Something it feels like, that. like about six months. Yeah, but yeah. No, it's been great. We've been running around. Uh, we went as far as Glasgow and back, and then kind of every every cinema along the way, and mm-hmm. went and did Q and As and screenings and. And it's been lovely. And you've been doing other stuff in, in the time since you made this movie, but this is a, a long journey for you with this film because it, it, it was at South by Southwest last year. Yeah. Now we're, we're pretty much a year and a half on from that. And That's you're right. still talking about Thunder Road. And you're it was still also a short with film it. beforehand. It was a so short I've film been, beforehand. I've been dealing with this character for the last 
three years, something like that, since since 2015, since uh, October of 2015. So are you ready for a break? Are you ready uh, I love the guy. I mean, it's 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 like, uh, I, you know, I don't think Charlie Chaplin got sick of the tramp. It's like there's a, there are characters that you can create where you kind of, they live with you and you get to like play these stupid people um, in your mind uh, yeah. and throughout your day. So no, I, I'm not, I'm not sick of talking about it or, or the song or, or anything. I love Bruce Springsteen. I love, I mean, it, it's very much an extension of me, which makes it much easier. Yeah, Steve Coogan says that. He's like, Alan is with me at all times. Like when you have a meeting with him, it's just like, yeah, that's, I'm here, but also Alan is in the room with us. It's like very obnoxious. Um, I, I, I feel that way. I'm, I'm not sick of it. I got, I got more stuff to do, but, um, but no, I've been thrilled. So you're saying that maybe Jim Arno might be, who is the character in Thunder Road, that this might be your Alan Partridge, that maybe you'll be back here in 30 years' time. Christ, if I'm oh still here in 30 God. years' time, can you imagine that? Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll be just a gravestone. <laughs> you'll be talking to a gravestone <laughs> or a hologram of my severed head just rotating in the corner. And, you know, still I'm, talking about this character. Still, yeah, still yeah, yeah. So now we're on Thunder Road 15. I, I don't super think powered so. Now. I don't think so. I, I, I have an idea for a sequel, but I don't, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll probably write it, but I don't know if, I don't know if we'll do it. It would be, it would be very difficult to, to pull off and so I don't know if we would do it but but Alan is just so perfect and is always topical and so yeah I, I think we'll see I want to see what that guy is like when he's 80 you know I think it's phenomenal what they've done yeah, yeah oh to, my to explore God. the character through different shows and different genres and even different media and it's incredible. so consistent like as if yeah. it's a real historical figure it's so good and I love the way that people talk about it I was talking to somebody yesterday about it and I was like oh I was watching season one of I'm Alan Partridge and he had so many wrinkles around his eyes and then somebody else goes um, yeah I think he had work done. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> the one thing I don't like about the the, the way Island uh, and Partridge has evolved over the years is his hair in the movie Alpha Papa. Yeah, people I were just, furious about that. I'm not I, happy about it. So in the books, um, in uh, in Nomad, they're talking about it where where they actually uh, register some of those complaints where it's just like, oh, I had my hair changed, and people are like, no, you can't do that. That's not what Alan looks like. You're not. And he goes, I'm bloody Alan. I know what I'm talking about. I know what my hair should look like. It was really funny. Everybody was furious because he has that I was, like that was disgraceful. I thought it was hilarious. It has this like this stupid bouffant seriousness to it. He's trying to be cool at that age. I thought it was brilliant. It's midlife crisis in the hair. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just need my Alan to be safer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More conservative, yeah. a little bit. I need more, to embrace more that side. Back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we will get on to talking about Thunder Road eventually, I promise you. But before we started talking uh, on mic, so to speak, you were talking about the day to day and Peter Hanrahan, Hanrahan <laughs> which is probably the greatest comedy character name since Dr. Michael Huff Har. Yeah. Uh, and clearly, you're a, you are a student of comedy. You started off writing comedy for College Humor. But is British comedy a big thing for you then? Oh, yeah. I grew up watching um, The Young Ones on VHS and then graduated to Jeeves and Worcester. And the, Barnes & Noble in the United States used to sell American VHSs of uh, BBC America uh, prints. So you could get all of – you get Black Adder, you could get all of these things. And so I would end up going into Barnes & Noble with my older sister, Damon, and we would just buy these things. And those were always my, my birthday presents and things like that. So I, I, I was very savvy at the, a very young age of seven, six or seven watching. Watching light comedy um, mm. from the UK, never Monty Python. Um, really? some, sometimes uh, Faulty Towers, but I, I really loved 
the craftsmanship of uh, of schemes in Jeeves and Worcester of like set up and pay off. <laughs> and like it was just so compelling to me. And then I was I was late to, to Christopher Morris. Christopher Morris was the first person that I, I really related to in college because it was so revolutionary and scary. Um, he got fired from the BBC because they used to record the news in this tiny like bunker, this little booth. And somebody was doing news live out on the radio and he hooked up a helium tank to it to make the news go out in a higher pitched voice. And they're like, you are literally poisoning people here. You need to, you need to get out of here. So I got fired and I was like, that is brilliant. That is really revolutionary and crazy. And, um, and so I, I, I just binged the day to day and brass eye and blue jam and, yeah, and, yeah, jam. Yeah. and I, it was just so different and insane. And it wasn't the kind of sketch comedy that I had seen or grew up with in college that was just trying to be funny. It was different and bizarre. And then discovered Alan and Alan and Armando's work, Armando Iannucci's work of just building these real characters and the punchlines are in, in seeing how the characters brains work rather than like stupid punchlines. And that was so fresh and new to me. And I fell in love. It was like, uh, that became a real education for me in a way that, um, the vast majority of comedy classes, uh, that I had seen and friends of mine had taken, um, were doing. Yeah. Knowing that really, I think lays Thunder Road bare. Because it started with a short, which is essentially, in case people, you know, it's available. Uh, you, can, you can go yeah. and see it. It is your character at a eulogy having a bit of a breakdown, and that feels very Chris Morris. It feels, even it feels, you have, you say Python isn't an influence on you, but it feels Python esque hmm. in a way. That it's very much a simple idea that is. Blasphemy, yeah, sure, 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 and then, and then, yeah, a nervous breakdown, uh, yeah, a, a character performance. I'm wearing a crazy outfit. I'm wearing a policeman's uniform. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like I, I tended to follow, or I was impressed by the British tradition of comedy of making something that uh, showcases how everybody is feeling in society and like the normalcy and the political correctness and then dipping below that and having the, the main character dip below that to kind of make everybody uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And like that discomfort is just revealing what society is. And that's what's so funny. Like everybody, even children know that that's not the right thing to do. And that can <laughs> that can be so involving. Everybody can laugh at that. Yeah. The one of the amazing things about this movie and about the short film as well is that you hadn't performed before you yeah, did dude. it at all. Uh, I had acted uh, very briefly for a friend of mine named Tony Ascenda, and I played this like cheesy director in a in a short film called This Is Jay Calvin. But that was like very documentary, um, and it, it was a character, but it was just this goofy thing that we had been working on for a while. Um, but no, I had this was the first time where I was like, I'm gonna commit to playing a character and actually do this thing and and really act. And I had never taken an acting class. I still haven't. But I, I knew what good acting should look like for this <laughs> character. And I had cast somebody else. I had cast somebody in my mind who was a friend of ours who looks a lot more like a police officer. But when we were doing it, it just seemed so – it wasn't very funny. It was very tragic. And and so I was like, no, I think it could be – I think it could be much funnier than this. Let me just try it. And then I filmed myself doing it. And then that became the short. It was like, okay, no, that, that this is working. Maybe I should just grow a mustache out, and then I'll <laughs> I'll just like do you know bench presses and stuff like that, and then look a little bit more like a cop. And and that's how I got into acting. That's that blows my mind. You had no aspirations 
to act at all. You, no, there was never was, something you goofed off with friends doing funny voices and. No, and I think I was too timid for that, or I thought that that was too cheesy. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. I probably should have. I went to a liberal arts college, and so there was a lot of like cliques of people that were doing that kind of stuff. But I, I was, I, I don't know. Maybe I thought I was better than them. I don't know. But I was, I was too, I was too timid, and um, I felt too inadequate to to join. That I was worried about. Um, my ego, I guess, and so I didn't. I didn't practice. I didn't do any of that stuff. So, so no, yeah, I, I had been writing screenplays, and I'd wanted to direct, and I had all these aspirations of being a writer and director. And then graduated from college and realized that nobody was going to hire a twenty-one-year-old to direct anything. And so I was like, okay. And so I produced for about six or seven years, seven years, uh, and I was doing that for friends and people who had done viral videos, and I was trying to like. I don't know, make a company and struggling to do that. And then I produced a few features and I was working at College Humor as a line producer and just organizing these shoots. And it was just much easier to organize a, a sketch than I had ever imagined. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, I, I, if I just did this for something of mine, it would be easy. It would be a six-hour shoot. We could shoot it in a single location. I, I do this three times a week for other people. Why can't I just do it for myself? And then that became the Thunder Road short film. And it was six hours in a funeral home. And I got to spit on the floor and seem like a lunatic. And uh, they let me do it. And then that became that short. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then the the journey from short to the uh, to the expansion, that's called the expansion, the, yeah. the, the feature film. That wasn't as straightforward as you might think. So it wasn't necessarily the case that you went into Thunder Road thinking, okay, this is a proof of concept almost. I'll yeah. do the short and yeah. then I'll do a film. It wasn't quite like that. Yeah, so artistically it was very complicated because I had no aspirations of becoming a feature. So I was like, I had done, I did nine other short films between Thunder Road and the feature uh, with the same team, my friends and family making stuff. And uh, and so I had a, the experience of making something that was at least ninety minutes. I had like done the you know the duration haul, but then I I was knocking on people's doors trying to get financing to do the feature of Thunder Road, and nobody would help us out. So we were still nobodies. Like we still didn't know anybody. I wasn't a very well followed guy on Twitter. I didn't like I, so if I was knocking on Jake Gyllenhaal's do- door to like come and act in this feature, he, you know, he was like, hey, "Who's this guy?" Um, <laughs> I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like everybody in Hollywood was trying to get us to, to like cast name actors and then come back to them when it was a six million dollar movie. And I was like, "No, I just need a hundred and ninety grand." That's like all we've budgeted the movie. This is how much it's going to cost. And and I don't think that the the system as it is knows how to make movies at that budget. But we did. And so we ran a Kickstarter campaign and raised 36 grand in four weeks. And then I put up my savings account. My producer matched me. And then we had kind of strangers from around the world reach out to buy percentages of the film after you couldn't support the Kickstarter anymore. But they were like, hey, I missed the Kickstarter. Are you guys selling shares of the company? Could we just, could I just buy a share of the movie? Wow. So we sold shares for Thunder Road for 12 grand a piece to seven financiers from around the world, lovely people. We're just friends of ours now. And I mean, it, it paid off for him. You know, it, it was a good investment, clearly. Um, but <laughs> but that's how we did it. There, there wasn't a clear way of doing it, and there was no rule book for us. But now yeah. that's how we make all of our movies, and that's and then we realized that's how everybody makes their movies. The reason why we couldn't get any money from Hollywood because they were seeing us as a competition. They were seeing us as their subordinate and the competition. And competition, they kind of try to shut down in a way because you, you had offers yeah. after 
after South by Southwest, I believe, and uh, the, the offers weren't that great. Were, you know. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Terrible. It's shocking. I mean, it, we had gotten into Cannes. We got into well, yeah. the selection of Cannes and, and still got terrible offers. Like, the, the feature film, independent feature film market is just so predatory and terrible right now because it's become democratized, because you can upload your film to a platform like Quiver Digital or Distributor, and that's what any of these smaller distribution companies do to get on iTunes or pitch to Netflix. It's like it is completely democratized now. And and so they are literally becoming these people who are in between you uploading your YouTube video and YouTube. So it's like they're just these middlemen. And I think it's all going away. I hope it's all going away. Mm-hmm. It, it really would be amazing if you could have this direct cons- to consumer market for creators just like any other market. Like with, with music – you can upload your podcast, you can upload your song to, mm-hmm. to SoundCloud and then develop your audience there. I, I think that that's, that's kind of the future for independent features as well. But how do you, how do you stand out? Because it isn't just necessarily an issue of quality. You show sex. You show violence. <laughs> you stand out because Disney is buying everything. <laughs> Mickey Mouse doesn't like that stuff. You're not allowed to do that. Mickey won't allow it. And and what's great in, in the in the world of independence is you get to do that. And also, there are a thousand things that, that make you stand out. These companies feel the need to corporately virtue signal, and they they complicate the things. They're so worried about what the public is going to say about them. But with independent filmmaking, you you don't have to worry about that at all. You mm-hmm. can just make something that that will actually make audiences laugh or actually make audiences cry or entice them or gross them out or whatever you want to do to touch the lobes of the brains of your audience um, in ways that these giant multi-million dollar corporations can't do. It's wonderful. It's a great time to be an independent (laughs) filmmaker. (laughs) What are you doing next? I am – we just shot a werewolf movie in March that I wrote, directed, and star in. Uh, that's like, I say it's like Zodiac as a comedy, where it's like <laughs> this guy trying to find out who is killing these women on the full moon. It's brutal. And then it's also very funny. I played this kind of the, the nutcase of a dude in Utah. And then um, we're in development with Hulu to make a TV show about astronauts coming back to the suburbs that we've been mm. researching for the last like six years. And it is so interesting. I've read the autobiographies of every living astronaut in English, and um, it's it's so funny and so poignant, and it's my favorite. That weird adjustment period. Yeah, yeah. and like how do you – like that, that thing of, you know, everything in space is an emergency, and you're like – you're at your prime and you're at your peak, and you come back and you're 35, 37 – and uh, you come back and these kids are screaming and you have to mow the lawn and do the dishes. It's everything that suburban people have problems with, these kind of existential crises. But it's a thousand times worse for an astronaut. <laughs> and so I just I, – I, if I can provide solace for astronauts, I think I can do it for the rest of the people. And that, that's the goal. But no, the next one, we're, we're doing a, a feature that I wrote and directed and I'm acting in in, in August. And uh, that's going to be a very similar budget to Thunder Road of like okay. g- basically having complete control over the the production and how the camera moves and everything like that. Uh, so all of this, uh, the, the money that you raised uh, for this film, and by the way, I don't know if you can disclose this, but say, for example, I, I had invested $12,000 in your movie. Yeah. What would I be looking at now? 
So the the deal was it was 120 percent ROI. So uh-huh. it's 1440. Am I getting that right? It's uh, 14,400 is what they would okay. get back if they invested yeah. uh, uh, 12,000. That's all right. And then and then and then uh, they own one percent of the movie and its gross income for the rest of their lives. So I'll be sending these people checks for the rest of their <laughs> lives, which is great. It's just like investing in a startup or something like that. Yeah. So like, but but then the the, the reason why we did that was so that we could maintain ownership and then we cared about it instead of selling it off to somebody who is going to release 40 movies this year and bury our movie or not really give it the the, the care to, to do it we're we're talking about it we're traveling with it it's like we we get to maintain ownership and and show the loving care for this film that it deserves in, in a way that that nobody else would and so the investors were like okay cool we're gonna bet on these people because they are so driven to do it yeah yeah it's great i'm doing the same thing for the next one for this next one we're doing a crowd equity campaign um instead of it being like a kickstarter where you just donate money for rewards you you donate money, but then you're investing in portions of the company so that you get 125% ROI, and then you become an investor and receive checks for the rest of your life. I really think it's the future of that's, making things, man. That's incredible. Uh, Jim, we should have a chat afterwards, because I, I am looking for a pension plan. Uh, <laughs> and B, you, you know, between you and me, guaranteed four-star review in Empire Magazine. <laughs> I could even stretch to five. Now, some people might say that's corrupt, and I have no integrity. <laughs> But it's okay. These mics aren't on. At least, we're, yeah. At least we're not recording. This is great. <laughs> this isn't being recorded. It's all good. But one thousand dollars, I believe, it's one thousand dollars of your budget for Thunder Road has gone to Bruce Springsteen. Uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I, I shot the film without the rights, stupidly, very stupidly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we use the song in in the short film. I do it like karaoke, and the the very copywritten famous song plays on the little boombox, <laughs> and uh, and it's humiliating. And then. Uh, and then after I shot it, both my parents are lawyers. They're like, you're an idiot. Why did you do this? You can't cut it out of the movie. It's one long shot. There's no way you could remove it. And so we won Sundance, and I was like, this is going to be a real problem. We're not going to be able to put this on Vimeo without the help of, of Bruce. We had to get in touch with him. But it took about four or five months just to get him to see the short. He saw the short, and he liked it. But we're like, no, no, no. We need, we need you to give us permission so that we put it online for free. We weren't trying to make any money off of it. Yeah. It cost five or six grand to make. Yeah. And so I was like, I just want this to put, on, put it online. It would be such a tragedy if this thing could, you know, couldn't, couldn't be seen by, by students of film and stuff like that. And so uh, I eventually just wrote an open letter, and I was like, dear Bruce, I'm an idiot. I'm a child. I don't know what I'm doing, but I did this thing, and I'm wondering if you can help us out. We're just trying to put it online. Surely you must understand. Like, I'm, you know, 27 years old, 28 years old. I need help. And we got a phone call from his team two days later. Uh, I put my phone number at the bottom, I think, very stupidly, and then, like, an email address. But they reached out, and they were like, "Uh, totally fine. Uh, You can take down the open letter, give us $1,000, put it on Vimeo for a year. And I was like, perfect, that's great. And I re- signed a check to Bruce Springsteen because he owns his own music. <laughs> He's a very smart man. The thing I can't believe about that is that he cashed a check. I think so, yeah. I think it was cashed. I think it was cashed. <laughs> I have to check on that. I don't know. I have to check on that. That's he nice. really needs it. He really needs that, <laughs> that Jim like, Cummings money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just like, that's just walking around cash for yeah. him. It's just... <laughs> That's his daily food. What the, yeah, what the hell's yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, no, no. Give he was the guy like, a break. No, no. no. I, I was working at, at Lucasfilm for years, and George Lucas still basically every other Silicon Valley, you know, giant corporation has free cafeterias. George Lucas make you pay for everything. It's just like, <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope. You want, you want, yeah, you want that chicken? No, no, no. Yeah. You gotta. You he's personally, he's the cashier. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you want some chicken? He's the cashier. <laughs> the flannel <laughs> and the tucked in and jeans. I uh, know. Uh, yeah, it'll be take cash or card. <laughs> that'll be twelve ninety. Yeah, that'll be twelve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's writing scripts. <laughs> Why Thunder Road? 
Yeah, dude. Thunder Road is uh, Thunder Road is this like anthem that I thought was specifically American, but so many people around the world really love it, and it convinces people to um, change their lives if they're unhappy and to pack up their cars and um, and move uh, if something's not going well in this small town, and it becomes this perfect antidote for uh, going through hell. And I, my mom was deeply inspired by it. She like, she loves Bruce Springsteen and she would always play Thunder Road and talk uh, lovingly about Bruce. I think she was in love with the guy, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but, but Thunder Road was like a big song from my childhood and I knew every lyric. And then I turned like 28 and I heard it on the radio coming back from this, this, uh, this event at College Humor and I was crying for like three hours because I feel like I really heard it and I was like... Mm. I don't know what it was, but but for whatever reason, at that time in my life, I had I hadn't I hadn't heard it in a while, and then listening to it, and I was thinking about my mom and like her changing her life, and that whole generation of humans that heard Bruce and was like, okay, well, you know, I my 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 parent, my life is in is in shambles, but this guy on the radio is telling me that it's okay to admit that you're unhappy and pack your car and get the hell out of there, and uh, I thought that was just so moving, and it really hit me, and then it had to be Thunder Road. And then I was like, well, I would sing this song if if my mom passed away. And I was like, well, what if I just, what if it was just terribly performed? And what if it was like, <laughs> what if I just blew it? And then and then I was like, well, that could be really funny and very poignant and very tragic. Um, and that could be like a Pixar film. And I love Pixar films. Yeah. I love Inside Out and what they do to, yeah. to audiences. And so I was like, well, this could be a really cool like live action Pixar movie. And then I thought, how could we complicate it even more? What if it was all one shot? What if it was just this like <laughs> performance piece for this actor? I was like, what if it was equally funny and equally tragic and, and poignant? And then what if also he's a police officer? <laughs> like how humiliating that would be for like this testosterone club. Uh, and it could say something about, you know, police brutality and how this guy shouldn't have a gun and all of the wonderful things that I wanted to, to say politically. And then I was like, well, what if he also does this incredible dance <laughs> to to the Bruce Springsteen song? How humiliating that would be. And it just kind of snowballed into this perfect congealed thing uh, within two weeks. And then I was like, okay, cool. This is a this is a short film. This is this is the thing that I want to do next. I think I have to do this thing. Mm. But but Thunder Road is at the core of it. And then for the feature, I mean, it is Thunder Road, even though it's not Thunder Road. Thunder Road is a song about this teenage boy trying to convince this girl in their high school to run away with him because um, th- th- there's no good future for them there. And uh, and and it's just this wonderful indictment of these small towns in America where there's not much opportunity. And after the recession in 2008, I feel like a lot of these small towns evolved into that and everybody's going through hell in America. It's a weird time right now. And I thought that this could be a really cool thing to to do Thunder Road in a different way. And so And so my film is about a father and a daughter doing that where mm. this guy has this love for the song and it meant so much to his mom and then he uses that to to leave their small town and and convince her to run away and I was like this is just perfect it has to be a feature now and as soon as I had that idea of like what if what if they run away together then that was that's what made it worthwhile to call it Thunder Road and make that movie I did a Q&A with you last week and you, you said something that I've never heard a screenwriter say before. It, it kind of blew my mind, and I think it might help a lot of people trying to write screenplays. In that you 
recorded yeah. your screenplay as a podcast yeah. and sent it out to people. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, first off, it just, it, it started out as just a means of making myself happier because I was looking at a PDF on my desktop and I was like, that is a finished screenplay and it's not going anywhere. So I'd send it out in emails, but it was just this, it was like, you know, white paper with black words on it. I was like, well, that's just nowhere near close, close enough to a movie from what I'm imagining. And I was like, well, I have all this experience in recording stuff and making movies. Why don't I just start doing it? And I heard a story about Peter Jackson making uh, Fellowship of the Ring, the entirety of Fellowship of the Ring with Green Army Men and little like action figures. Mm. And he edited it and put in like temp music. And he was just making the movie already as like these visual storyboards. And I was like, well, hell, I mean, I, I don't have the ability to do that, but I could do this movie as a, as a radio play. And so I recorded it in my closet with a Zoom recorder and then even some with like a, the iPhone voice memo app and then brought it into a timeline and started editing it and putting in sound design and music and then sent that out to the cast and crew uh, and the producers and the financers and everybody, just everybody in the core to say like, hey, this is what the movie's going to sound like. And not only did everybody engage with it immediately, unlike sending somebody a screenplay, uh, they were able to hear the movie as many times as they wanted before they showed up on set. So they could get a full idea of what the cadence and the tone and the pacing in the movie was going to be um, before they showed up and then bring all of their departments uh, to that. So like that became this base layer of quality and then they were able to make it better in each of their departments. Wow. It, it was great. I do it for all of my movies now. And you were playing all the parts or did you I get playing, yeah, yeah. I played Crystal, the nine-year-old girl. Uh, but I grew up listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, and Jim Dale does that. He plays Hagrid and Hermione and all these other characters, and I never noticed. And I was like, you know, it's it's fine. And it works. Like, It's more about like the tone and getting the punchlines, and if it's working for you in audio format, it should work on film. So that means, all told, short film, feature film, and recording these screenplays as a podcast, you performed that eulogy now how many times? Oh, countless times, man. And then rehearsing it, like, I, I'm not a trained actor, and so I had to rehearse it a thousand times. Like, in order to make it any good, I was so nervous that, like, it was going to come off as phony, and so I was, I was just, I was driving myself and bullying myself into making it perfect. So I'd set up a, a cell phone across the room and then just do the full dance, do the full eulogy in my apartment. It was, uh, it was really, it was really a, a, a sad endeavor. But like, I would just do it a thousand times in the shower, on the drives to work. I was crying on the drives to work. I'm sure I wasn't alone oh um, <laughs> in traffic in Los Angeles. Uh, but, but no, I, it, I would, yeah, I've pro- probably done that eulogy probably 500 times a thousand times maybe what's the take number in the movie uh 18 for the feature take 18 uh yeah we shot it nine times with the song broke for lunch and then shot it nine times without the song as you used the very last take we used the very last take i was exhausted and it shows and it's like that's kind of how that guy would would look if he's been been up all night yeah Yeah. doing rehearsing a dance Could, could you do it again you're not a performing monkey i understand that could you do it again now it, yes. Do you remember it right? Do you remember the, the eulogy verbatim? I do. Bloody yeah. hell. Only because I've done it so many times. Thank yeah. you for coming. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine. Yeah, no, no, this is great. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I keep coming. I could do it. Yeah. No, seriously. Because it's 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 become part of my DNA, and that's what it had to be. It's like, it might be the best thing that I do with my life. It had to be It had to be perfect. Now, I will not ask you to do it. Don't worry. <laughs> we don't have that kind of time for one thing, but it's been a pleasure, man. And uh, best of luck with everything for the future. Thank you for having me. And we should talk about that, that four-star Empire review. That, That's right. You know, we I'm, I'm actually that. handing money under the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a Fenmo. It's all good. Okay, perfect. As much <laughs> Cheers, as you. man. Thank you.
Okay, that was Jim Cummings, and we're going to be discussing Thunder Road in the reviews section of the show, which is, let me just check my watch, now. It is now. But we'll discuss Thunder Road in a second. Now, I will say Thunder Road is the only film I've seen this week because I've been away. Mm -hmm. uh, So I haven't had a chance to see either Booksmart or Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Mm. I have scheduled a double bill of these two movies on Saturday. Which order? I'm going Godzilla, King of the Monsters first, and then Booksmart. Correct. (laughs) Anyway... Let's talk about Booksmart. Last week we had Caitlin Deaver and we had Beanie Hepp Feldstein on the show. And this is the directorial debut of Olivia Wilde. Yes, and it's incredible. It's so good. It is the film that is currently rivaling Avengers Endgame for my film of the year. I was going to say at the box office. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite the box office, but um, but honestly, I think it is phenomenal. It is a massive crowd pleaser. Uh, I saw it at a press screening, first of all, because I basically forced them to let me in. And then went to see it with a crowd on on Monday night when it came out. And the reaction was phenomenal because it is it's just really funny and smart and heartwarming and and unlikely and quirky and glorious so our stars are as you've heard uh, Beanie Feldstein who's Molly and her best bud forever Amy played by Caitlin Deaver and they are on their final day in high school and they have killed it they have achieved all of the what's it's and been on all the committees and you know Molly's been student body president and the whole thing um, and she's off to Yale next year and uh, Caitlin's off to go to Africa for the summer and you know teach women to make their own tampons it's a whole thing and then they have a massive crisis well specifically Molly let's be honest has this mass- massive crisis when she discovers that all of the slacker hard partying wild kids are also massive overachievers and are also going to amazing colleges next year. Um, and she's basically like, we fucked up. We have not had as much fun as we should have had. We now have to fit an entire high school's worth of fun into tonight. And that's where things go from. Um, this is a film where I, I, I kind of tweeted this earlier in the week after seeing it again. Oh, I would recycle die. material, Helen. I know, I know. Ugh. But I would genuinely die for most of the characters in this film. I love them would you so know? much. I, I mean, would I'd, you? Be, I'd be close to it. I just adore them. I mean, Molly and Amy have this incredible friendship. It is hashtag relationship goals, everybody. But it is also just weird and unlikely and it the first time i saw this i desperately wished that my best friend helen who is not a made-up person she really exists her name is helen queen she was my best friend in school she's here right now were you <laughs> the helens no because people weren't stupid like that but but honestly my best friend was also called helen and i was like i can't believe i'm watching this without her i really wish she were here so if you have a best friend from school i recommend taking them to this movie it'd um, be logistically difficult they live many miles away just just get in your car and go chris just just get a tr- get on now, a train chris, drop do everything. it right take now. those headphones off are you still in touch with your best friend of course helen yeah, so I just kinda, saw the weekend. i've kind of fallen out of not not fallen out of favor but you know sometimes Friendships just lapse a little bit. That's terrible. So my, my best friend from school, we're still in touch. We're on Facebook and stuff, but he came to my wedding, but it's not the same. Well, I'm just saying it might make you want to get back in touch if you both watch the movie again. But it is it is really good that way. But also the supporting cast is fantastic. And I'm not just talking about the sort of cameoing, starrier names, like obviously Jason Sudeikis is in there. But smaller people... <laughs> how, how did Olivia Wilde get, her, get him? I know. She, she must have gone far and wide to find him. <laughs> But also, I mean, Billy Lord is a mm. massive, massive scene still in this. She is phenomenal as Gigi. It's all of the kids, I think. Molly are, Gordon's are really good in this. It's really AAA. good. Yeah. Mm. I, I just I just love them all. And I think they're really fantastic, fantastic role models for us as adults of young people nowadays because they're so much more clued up and interesting than we were at the same age. And I love them and I love the film. And we gave it five stars. And, you know, if anything, that's too few. It's, I love it. It's a very, very, very good film. Even my 
onyx granite heart was uh, <laughs> was touched by this one. It, I was trying to think, like watching this, like it's been a long time since we've had a truly great film sort of in this arena. Mm. I don't want a teen movie feels a little bit almost reductive. Yeah. But like, you know, you had things like uh, like Lady Bird, which was a slightly different take on it, but it was yeah, a Lady different Bird sort is, of film. Yeah. You know, that was about a girl and her mother more than anything and, and, and it wasn't yeah, it's more yeah. it's more it's more indie drama. Exactly I mean, even that. though it's very funny, it's more indie drama. But this is more straight up this comedy. This has that warm and fuzzy John Hughesy vibe to it, which mm. I've been missing for a really long time. Like, I just it was like being wrapped up in a warm blanket of love watching this film. Yeah. And like, and I think you're right. I think the the glue that holds us together is the relationship between those two girls because they were really close to making it. They lived together. They hung out all the time. I mean, when Terry interviewed them for the podcast, they were almost joined at the hip. They're finishing each other's sentences. It's sandwiches. incredibly sandwiches. Yeah. Yes, it's incredibly cute. And that really comes across. Like, yeah. Their friendship is incredible. So much so you think, God, I wish I had a best friend like that. It's amazing. Are you still in touch with your best friend from school? I hate all living things, Chris. Of course I don't have a best friend. That's that's true. So everything I've seen about this film, because I haven't seen it yet, but mm-hmm. everything I've read says that Olivia Wilde knocks it out of the park and that yeah. it's incredibly well directed. Yes. And what I'm taking from that is that uh, she brings a visual... Freshness yeah. to mm. this because most comedies, most comedies are low budget, yeah. and most comedies are shot very, very quickly, and they don't necessarily pay attention to the visual side of things. No, the, I think there's real visual um, flourishes here. I mean, I don't want to spoil some of them. But there's kind of a surreally fantasy sequence. Fantasy yeah. sequence. There's there's a fantasy sequence and also a sort of weirdo trippy sequence yeah. so two different things um, but even just the the little stuff you know she got a super slow-mo cam to to catch the moment when a well a condom full of water hits someone in the face and yes. it's like in super super slow-mo there's an slow-mo. amazing montage of that over the end credits yeah. which everyone should stay for definitely uh, but yeah there's so many genuinely laugh out loud gags in this yeah. and the humour kind of varies from slightly to surreal to quite knowing and arch it's, it's really really fun yeah. this sounds great yeah it yeah. really I'm is. excited by this but please tell me you're not selling me a pup because loads of people raved about Blockers last year, and I didn't like that. I like Blockers. This is much better than Blockers. Okay. Where would you rate it on the Game Night scale in terms of I like Game of Night. I would, I would say this is massively better than Game Night. It's a lot better than Game better Night. Than and game I think night. Game Night is great. But oh. Game Night's a different type of film. Like, you know, it's not... It's, it's like Apples and... It's like Apples and Volkswagens. Yeah. It's not the same. I think I even like this better than Easy A or Mean Girls. Like, and I love Easy A and Ooh, Mean Girls. Better than bold Easy claim. A! Yeah. Bold claim. My expectations have been ramped up here. This is... Wow. Okay. Fantastic. Five stars then for Booksmart. I am very much looking forward to going to see it uh, this Saturday. And if Liverpool are losing 3-0 at halftime, I will see it again Saturday night. (laughs) So that's what I'll be doing. That brings us on to God Save the King of the Monsters. Yeah. It is not a five-star film. No. Should point out, right from the off, that we gave this film one star. I should also point out, rightfully off, that the person who gave it one star is not in the room, Ben Travis, because I really wanted to talk to him about it. I haven't seen this film. James, I don't believe you've I seen the film seen yet. I am planning to see it at the uh, the weekend. Helen, I think you're a little more up in it than one star. One star is quite the rating, it I is, have to say. It is, it is quite, I would say, harsh, but I can't disagree with much of the substance of Ben's review, if I'm honest. Until... I heard from you, mm. I know that everyone that I know from Empire who has seen this film thought it was a one-star film. Yeah. There was I like, I haven't I have not seen it but I have heard a lot of people shouting about it in the office, yeah. which I have to say surprised me because I thought the trailers looked really good. Mm-hmm. They played up the spectacle and the visual yeah. side of the movie. Michael Doherty, the director and the writer, the director of this movie, has a good track record as yeah, a director. Krampus, Krampus, and, and Trick or Treat, mm-hmm. which are two very very good horror films. If you haven't checked them out, and as a writer, he was a co-writer on X Men Two mm-hmm. all those years ago as well. So what? What's, so what's, what um, kind of went wrong? If indeed. 
So we start years after, obviously, five years after the attack on San Francisco by the Mutu, Muto and Godzilla that left the, the city in rubble, mm-hmm. basically. And there's even a little sort of um, flashback set up there which, where we get to know that this little family was was involved. Vera Farmiga, uh, her daughter, who grows up to be Millie Bobby Brown, and Kyle Chandler mm-hmm. um, as, as Mark. So... They are cryptozoologists. They've been working on animal communications and that has kept on going even as their marriage has faltered and they've separated. He's off in the wilderness working on wolves. She's developing a thing to try and talk to these titans to try and... Because the, the governments have of the world have basically found more of them and they're just kind of watching them under the auspices of Monarch to see what happens. Shield. I, I mean, Monarch, yes. Monarch, yeah, definitely not Shield. Totally different uh, <laughs> organisation. Not not um, Prodigium. Yeah. And then Charles God. Dance's character, who Welcome is... The um, of gods and monsters. <laughs> Charles Dance is basically a bastard. And uh, he turns up and uh, kidnaps uh, Vera Farmiga's character, Emma, and her daughter, and takes them away because he wants this machine that can potentially talk to the Titans. And that's the setup of the story. And what do you know? Soon enough, loads of titans are breaking free of their ancient slumber and coming to cause chaos all over the place. And if only we had one titan who might like us and might be persuaded to... from the depths, 30 stories high. (laughs) (laughs) Godzuki! Oh, man, I'd be so... I'd be be there if Godzuki was in this movie. So, yeah, it's... I think there's a decent idea there. It gets overcomplicated again. You've got loads and loads and loads of human characters. You know, you have some coming back from the first film, Sally Hawkins as Dr. Graham. Mm. You've got Bradley Whitford in there just being sarcastic oh, in the he's, background. He's, so. he's given Ghidorah. He's given an automatic five stars of Bradley Whitford's in it. It's true. Um, Does the, he do a walk and talk with Godzilla? <laughs> is Joel Kinnaman in this movie? He is. I mean, unless he was Godzilla, because he is very tall. <laughs> But no, uh, Ken Watanabe's back, um, so still making sort of gnomic pronouncements <laughs> about the Titans, as they're now called. Uh, Zhang Ziyi plays two characters, plays twins, and I suspect the other one is going to be more important in Godzilla vs. Kong mm-hmm. um, in years to come. Is that definitely happening? It I is mean, definitely happening. We'll it's been cast up. It is. Uh, it starts shooting imminently, I think, mm-hmm. and it has a 2020 release date. Yeah. So, yeah. I imagine if this movie Ultra Tanks over the weekend, there maybe there, there may might be some, be some yeah, changes, there may be some but, but I I think it's happening, and I can see this movie ultra tanking. No, I think it's going to do okay because those posters and the publicity campaign, as you mentioned, have been great. And the thing is, the spectacle is there. I kind of agree with Ben that some of the fight scenes are murky and not terribly well explained. There's a bit with Mothra, oh Mothra's in it. There's a bit with Mothra that I didn't really get. I had to kind of really think about to figure out what just happened. It's a, it's a big moth, Helen. Thanks. It was a thing that Mothra does that I wasn't clear on. Just fly on towards just. a light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> just, just get a giant light. In a manner of speaking, I suppose, you could say that it does. Anyway, kind of she raid. does. She's a she. Oh, obviously. she. Mothra's She's a she. sexist, you bloody titan muto-sexist. By the way, at the end of the credits, it says, like, Godzilla as himself, Mothra as <laughs> really? herself. Really? Really? As Sorry, himself. that's instant five stars right there. How do you, what? What's going on? Anyway. Yeah, anyway, so, and King Ghidorah is the big three-headed dude, and yep. that's quite sinister and weird and that's the big um, bad it's Rodan that's the big bad Rodan is in it and is a bit of a dick but less of a dick than Ghidorah so <laughs> so King Ghidorah is the mega dick he's the mega dick okay so where do we all stand I mean what's our Godzilla a view of Godzilla this the series mm. you know are, are we fans I'm not a huge fan I'll be honest cartoon. 
of Godzilla <laughs> over the years, and I think that the the two American versions of it aren't great either. Yeah. The, the yeah. Emmerich one and the yeah. Gareth Edwards one, which there's some amazing sequences in the Gareth Edwards one, which I was recently thinking about the uh, the attack at the airport and the Halo that, jump. The Halo jump. Yeah, the Halo that jump trailer was one of the most amazing trailers. But I feel yeah. like that moment and that the the, the beauty of that image yeah. has kind of haunted this film. So they've got images that are gorgeous you know sort of monsters on top of mountains flapping their wings and mm. the sunshine and dust around them I mean, it's, it's gorgeous gorgeous looking but then that doesn't always translate into, into the action being equally compelling because I think just the scale again it's it's really almost impossible to give humans something to do in one of the fights between and these what, what, characters. And what sort of personality do the monsters have? And that's, that's another big problem as well. Yeah. So when you have these CG city fuckathons mm. you know that Jim Mangold was talking about in his script for Logan and you can have them in, in movies like this or a Transformers or a Marvel movie or a DC movie. And as long as there's some personality to hook yourself onto, as long as there's some character to, to latch yeah. onto, then you can just about tolerate some of the, the, the mega destruction without it getting boring or overwhelming. But my worry is if we have Godzilla who doesn't have a great deal of personality as far as I could see. Yeah. Certainly doesn't speak. And these 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 things don't speak. No, they don't. They're so very much animals. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So we're just watching like a massive David Attenborough documentary. Y- and yeah, you are a little bit. I mean, they've given them a little bit of a social structure, I guess, okay. uh, in this case. And there is that element of communication with them. And um, so there's a little bit of that to them. And they do, I think, I think to Doherty's credit, I think he does a, a really... He really tries to emphasize that and he, he has a lot of shots of their eyes and looking at people and looking at things and trying to figure stuff out. Um, so I think there's an effort in that direction, but I think it is really hard to do. And, but I think what's worse is that some of the humans are not very well developed. I thought Formiga was great. I actually really liked her story. Um, but I thought Kyle Chandler really struggled and I think he's a very good actor and he mm. just, he is like just quintessential bare bones, basic American hero mm. dad. Did he ask Godzilla to take a knee at any point? Uh, no, but I just think he didn't have clear eyes and a full heart in this one. Uh, see, so, if you have that, you can't lose. He, yeah, exactly. So I just, I, I think that was a bit of a shame because I love him. <laughs> and then Ken Watanabe's character had some bits that were a little bit very on the nose, wise Japanese man, not to say wildly stereotyped, but they kind of felt mm. like, like they might be wild, wildly stereotyped to me. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I've just remembered we forgot to do? What's that? Well, one of the things we forgot to do was talk about the, uh, the you were talking about fan toxicity and you want to talk oh, yes. about it in relation to Godzilla we'll talk about that in a second yes. because mm. I've just remembered after talking about it all the way through the podcast we forgot to talk about the Boy George biopic <laughs> back in the news section so consider this a brief news section within the review section mm-hmm. before we talk about fan toxicity that's always a fun subject isn't it folks uh, so Boy George is a biopic of Boy George coming Boy George of course is the lead singer uh, was the lead singer of Culture Club most famous of course I'm saying of course a lot uh, for Karma Chameleon mm-hmm. of course and um, Sasha Gervaisi, who is the director of Anvil, the story of Anvil. One of my all-time favourite musical films. <laughs> it's really good. It I have held movie. a member of Anvil. <laughs> which, I, which, remember we did a, we did a feature on them. And we did a, which we member? Did a, we did a shoot up near Tottenham Court Road. We shot them for the magazine and we had them crowd surfing. And I was a member of the crowd. I had to hold up for a protracted period of time a member of Anvil. And Anvils mm. ain't light, right? No, they're not. They're very heavy. Okay. Wow. So Sasha Gervaisi is going to write and direct this. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be, you know, again, Boy George had quite a combustible relationship, I think, with Culture Club. And um, I think he had a relationship with another member of the band. But I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to name that member of the band just in case I'm completely wrong. But I think I think that's what happened. My 
culture club knowledge isn't great, but I think that's what happened. And of course, you know, working class London kid from an Irish mm. background, grew good up. Man. Um, good lad yourself. And, uh, you know, incredible voice, angelic voice. And again, there's a, there's a very classic rise and fall story going on here. Yeah. I do wonder if it has maybe the appeal of uh, yeah. an Elton John or a Freddie Mercury in terms of, you know, just the commercial appeal of that. But I, it could I be fun. I don't remember a great deal about Cops Club, to be honest. I'm sure there are a few things I knew, but um, it comes and goes. I'm struggling, if I'm honest, to name more than Karma Chameleon. Oh, come on. Think Help of me. the wedding plan singer. The wedding singer. Do you really want to no. hurt me? Oh, ah, yes, yes. Yes, I remember that. That was them. That was them. Oh, yeah. That's the name of the film. Do you really want to hurt me? <laughs> is that actually the name of the film? That should be the name of the film. Oh, it's not actually the name. No, but it should be, right? Fine, if we're going sure. on that Rockman, Bohemian Rhapsody template. Yeah. Well, it should be Karma really Chameleon in that case. No, do you really want to hurt me? Because it's about the, the, the psychological brickbats and bouquets that he received on his rise to the top. And I then his, see. his fall from grace. Okay. And then potential comeback and whatnot as well. George O'Dowd is his real name. Something O'Dowd. I've just remembered. George huh. O'Dowd. There you go. Okay, right. Let's move on to fan toxicity. Fan toxicity. Yeah. So that brief news um, excursion has finished. Yeah. So the the armies of Zilla bros came out of their caves to abuse Ben on Twitter for his one star review of this, and it, it got to a heated discussion in the office about fandom and how horrific it generally is. And we, there was a discussion about well, is this more toxic than Star Wars fandom? How does it relate to MCU fandom? Mm. You know, there seems to be a lot of toxicity around DC fandom, but maybe mm-hmm. it's because they just feel a bit more embattled than anyone else yeah. and someone just said look all fandom is toxic because it's just fundamental tribalism do you know what mm. I mean in the same way that football fandom it's all the same thing no. and it stirs the same things but it does feel like certain areas are the ones you don't want to go near and this Godzilla toxicity had a hint of the kind of DC-ness about it in that it was quite I thought unwarranted and harsh I mean I don't think all fandom is inherently toxic. I think quite the opposite. I think much fandom can be very positive. I think people can mm-hmm. sort of find their communities in a way that is not exclusionary. It's it's positive rather than negative. Sort of you, you find people who like the things you like, but that doesn't mean that you you have to hate the same things at the same time. I don't I don't think that's necessarily a condition of fandom. And I think the fact yeah. that anybody would think so shows how bad some fandoms have gotten. That's not tar everybody was saying brush. Yeah. I mean you, no, it's you, not, mentioned, you, you mentioned no, football absolutely. fans are you know, for example, I don't know any football fans who are who are assholes or hooligans, but obviously but I cannot deny that there are assholes yes. and hooligans yeah. out there. Which is the same with DC fans. I'm sure a lot of people who like DC movies, I mean I like a lot of DC movies, but that doesn't make those people necessarily toxic. It's just that there is the are they the vocal minority? Is it just like there's there's a group the of type of people minority, who yeah. whatever they like are going to be but, but, like but, this. It, but it is the minority and it's the it's the amplification that the internet gives yeah. that minority. So it's the the minority who downvoted Captain Marvel and continue to yeah. downvote Captain yeah, yeah, Marvel yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. Is, is this new thing this week that someone I can't remember who oh, was yeah, yeah, some yeah. prominent the, uh, the, the the deleted Twit. scene, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, so right. Captain Marvel is a villain, is a criminal. Oh my god, get a life, get some perspective, yeah, just get over it. Um, so uh, yeah, there there is that. There are those people, and they are super annoying, and and they do pull focus and maybe mm. we should just not let them. And they seem to exist in a vast cross section of fandom. So when I say it's mm. all all fandom, I don't mean everyone who is a fan of something because we are all of us here, yeah. sort of hardcore fans of a great many different things. But I think maybe. In a lot of fandoms, you do get a demographic who, frankly, ruin it for everyone else. 
I don't think they do. And I don't think we should say, even say that. I genuinely don't. Because I just think we shouldn't give them that power to ruin it. And I think we should... But I think, I think like, to, pretending they don't exist doesn't alter no, the fact that I'm not they saying, do. I'm not saying we pretend that they don't exist. I'm saying we stop amplifying them. And we stop pretending like they're the majority of people. They're yeah. not the majority of people. They're not the majority of people who saw The Last yeah. Jedi. They're not the majority of people who watched Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. Or even the majority of people who love Batman v Superman. Mm-hmm. They're the people who make the most noise. But do you not find it a curious human impulse? That sense that... I like this thing, therefore I must dislike someone who likes that thing. So whether it be Microsoft also, versus PlayStation the, or Arsenal versus, you know, whatever team Arsenal doesn't yeah, like. But, but this is something that's it's not new. And the, the, the phenomenon of you have seen this thing, I haven't, but I know that it's good mm. because I'm a fan and, and you're like not it. a fan mm. and that's why you don't like it. That's ridiculous. And that's been going on for years. I remember seeing mm. Inglorious Bastards at the Cannes Film Festival years ago and writing a uh, a reaction of it and I loved it. And the comment section, and again, never read the comments, but at the time I, I did, was ripping me apart going, oh, this film's a piece of shit. And it's like, guys, I've seen it. You haven't. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are literally 800 people in the world as of right now who have seen this movie. You are not amongst that number. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. Uh, that is clearly, it's clearly not a new phenomenon, but it, it, it does, it, yeah, it does disturb me a little bit. Mm. It's one of those reasons why... You know, whenever we do discuss things like the ridiculous half-assed petition to have Game of Thrones final season remade just because it didn't meet your exact specifications, there is a little bit of an internal debate, and obviously we have it externally on the podcast as well, Mm -hmm. about whether we should even give that the time of day by mentioning it. If by even mentioning these things or retweeting them on on Twitter, that you're giving them the oxygen of publicity. But at the same time, I also think they're twats and I like to point and laugh Mm. at twats and it's quite fun to do so and they give me lots of material so I'm a bit torn. (laughs) I'm a bit torn. Yeah, I try not to amplify them just because I'm bored of it. Um, Uh, Because you you especially, I think, you know, I lock down my Twitter settings. They're pretty watertight. I mean, let's put it this way. The only time I've ever felt moved and I've had it ever since to do so, to make my Twitter settings fairly watertight was when I got attacked by a group of DC fans, when I made a casual comment once about Batman and Superman, mm-hmm. checked my Twitter a few minutes later, and I was being inundated by hundreds of DC fans who were yeah. saying some pretty foul things. I started to en- engage them a little bit and, you know, take the piss. And then it's just like, you know, life's too short for this. So I just watertight. Now I can't see it. Uh, Helen, though. I there mean, was you, like a 48-hour period where you were locked in a battle royale with DC fans. That's the thing, you, you, do, you do engage. Yeah. And I think there's a lawyer in you. It's, the, it's, a, bar, it's a barista in you that, uh, <laughs> it's the Captain that wants Marvel to in her. <laughs> have a chat with these people and, and, and get the final word and, and kind of teach them the error of their ways. The problem with that is when you're dealing with people who Are irrational. Demi- do yeah. not want, who do they, not recognize. They don't want to be educated. Yeah, yeah they don't want to do that. No, they don't. And and I did end up uh, blocking a couple of uh, a bunch of people for that. Yeah. And I did end up muting the hashtag release the Snyder cut, <laughs> which has improved my life a lot. Nothing against Zack Snyder. I like Zack Snyder. Yeah. But I, Army of the Dead is going to be the greatest film. It is going to be it's going to be really good fun. Um, but honestly, if you're going around with the hashtag release the Snyder cut, your priorities may be out of whack. Like, you know, with the best will in the world, dude, it's been a long time. Let's move on. Yeah, I just I think I think fandom can be an incredibly positive thing. I think fandom yeah. can genuinely it has made friendships, it has made marriages, it has made uh, it has saved lives. I'm pretty sure it has saved lives. Well, it's about connecting yeah. with people, isn't yeah. it? I think common ground is a very valuable thing. And and so I don't I don't want to dismiss the whole thing. And I think this, I mean there 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 are links between a lot of these kind of 
actions and these behaviors online and a wider social problem. There's a Venn diagram, definitely. There is a a Venn diagram. Uh, There's a massive overlap between some of these fandoms, not all of them, but some of them and misogyny. There's a massive Mm -hmm. overlap between some of them and racism. There Mm -hmm. is a massive overlap between some of them and just a sense of entitlement that things should be exactly as you wish mm. and not as anyone else wishes. Which and, and Star that Wars is, is rife with at the moment. Yeah, and that is, that is, if you think about it, not healthy and you have to kind of get over it. Like, life means not always getting what you want. I mean, the Rolling Stones taught us that. They did. It's true. I don't think fandom is a lost cause. I think fandom's great, but... I also think there are a number of people who need to get, yeah. get a No, I, I, I agree with you in that. I think finding comic... You only have to go to Comic-Con to realise yeah. how beautiful it is when people who love things come together in a really positive way. Yeah, and are I so think, creative Yeah, and it's amazing. it's amazing. I think what I don't like is that it speaks to one of the more unpleasant parts of human nature, which is the need for otherness, the need for tribalism, and the need to say, this is mine, that is yours, therefore the thing you have is the thing that I hate. Mm. And it doesn't affect everyone, but it, it features enough, I think, on platforms such as Twitter, which arguably is in itself a toxic platform, to be problematic. It's all right, though. Twitter has commissioned a study to see if neo-Nazis are bad. They have. I saw that. Which That's nice. We should all commission such studies to find helpful. out such hard things to fathom. As someone on Twitter said, there was a study, it was called World War II. (laughs) (laughs) Results were fairly conclusive, guys. Ban the Nazis, you absolute shits. Um, Still, follow me on Twitter as (laughs) at Chris Hewitt. Just very, very quickly, um, I meant to mention this, this is the addendum section, but I uh, meant to mention this during the Booksmart review as well, while we're kind of having a a semi-serious discussion of, of events. I joked about Booksmart matching Avengers Endgame's box office. Mm. And there actually, there was a fairly concentrated discussion going on on Twitter uh, over the weekend, largely on film Twitter, uh, because Booksmart didn't do that well at the box office yeah. of the US over the weekend. And Olivia Wilde even took to Twitter, because she's very uh, focal and active on Twitter at the moment, to say, hey guys, we're being creamed by the bigger movies out there. Um, it, it was on track though, wasn't it? Like it was on track for what they projected it would do. I think it's it was, like a, it no, I think it was, no, I think, I think it was, it was under, underperforming. It was, under, it was under, relative. yeah. What did it actually do? It did just under 7 million at the weekend and Brightburn, which is another indie movie that James Gunn produced, horror film, uh, did just under 8 million. By comparison, Aladdin opened to 91 million at the weekend. John Wick Chapter 3 held uh, relatively well with 24 million and Avengers Endgame is still going and it did 17 million at the weekend and uh, if anyone's if anyone's keeping an, an eye on the uh, the Endgame Avatar yeah. race it's going to be a lot closer than I anticipated because Endgame is fading fast it's 100 million off as things stand it has eclipsed yeah it's like the uh, the spaceships in Independence Day so you know they're not <laughs> meteors because they're slowing down And uh, but it's entering Avatar's atmosphere there's no question about that mm-hmm. so uh, whether it gets there I suspect that Disney will keep it in cinemas until keep it, it in cinemas yeah. and yeah. keep it as wide as possible and make a big fanfare and a hullabaloo until uh, it makes enough to to overtake avatar but which they also own. it's 100 million away and it's making at the moment it's making about only 30 million a weekend globally and that's going to diminish obviously so it's going to take a while if it does it at all but uh, i thought it would have burned past it by now but uh, it has it has faded fast. Anyway, back to the Booksmart situation because Olivia Wilde went, look, we're being creamed by the big guys out there. And then the Russo brothers also had tweeted, hey, it's the fourth weekend of Avengers Endgame. Why not go see it for a fourth weekend? And then it almost seemed like battle lines were being drawn between people because I saw lots of people going, why should we go and see the big film? The big film makes all the money. You should support little films like like Brightburn and Booksmart and you know other films that are just don't get that oxygen of publicity and certainly don't open like all is true the Kenneth Branagh movie about Shakespeare 
It's opened in the States, but very, very few screens and has made just under $300,000. Tolkien made not very much at all, $4 million. All these small films are being are being creamed and are being overwhelmed by the bigger guys. But I don't think it's an either or. And it shouldn't be an either no. or. You should be able to enjoy Avengers Endgame for the fourth time in its fourth weekend or, or, or sixth in my case, seventh <laughs> in your case, I'm guessing, if you so desire. But you can also go see Brightburn and Booksmart and support the smaller films. Yeah, I, But I, it is a problem because the smaller films, the more they do get creamed at the box office the fewer studios and the fewer uh, financiers are going to are going to back them. Yeah, and, and you end up with the smaller films essentially going straight to Netflix um, when in years past they might have gone uh, to cinemas. And, you know, I, I get where Olivia Wilde's coming from. That opening weekend really determines how many screens you stay in mm-hmm. next week. And therefore, if it does badly on the opening weekend, then it's a vicious circle. You, you keep doing worse and worse from there because mm-hmm. you don't have the chance to do better. Um, so, you know, I get absolutely where she's coming from and I would love to people to go and see it uh, for opening weekend. I mean, especially in this case, it was up against Aladdin, uh, which is a very rare blockbuster led entirely by people of colour. Uh, it was up in this country against Rocket Man, which is a very rare blockbuster about a gay man. So it it was a very it's a very bad look if we pit those three against each other because if we want to be decent, supportive, progressive people, mm-hmm. those are exactly the three films we don't want to choose between. We want to support all three of them. So I, I know it's not practical for everybody, and it's, it's certainly mm-hmm. not affordable for everybody to go to the cinema all these times. Um, we'll but be here as long the lights have gone out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it would be—I don't know—it would that would be the ideal if we could, you know, support as many films as possible. I guess. Yeah, it is a shame. It is a shame. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what the solution is. Never mind, with you. But uh, keep an eye on that one. We should talk about Thunder Road very, very quickly. I've completely forgotten. Uh, this is a really long section, uh, but we should talk about Thunder Road. And I'm the only person here who's seen it, so um, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it too long. Um, hopefully, you got a flavour from the interview with Jim Cummings. I would strongly urge you to go see it. Uh, it is one of those unexpected gems that comes along every now and again. So he stars as a cop who has lost his mother, and the opening of the film is. Uh, reprise of the short film which is basically a eulogy that goes terribly terribly wrong and then from there we get to see his life as it begins to fall apart he has a relationship but that kind of toxic relationship with his ex-wife he has a young daughter that he's trying to bond with trying to connect with he has anger management issues he has grief issues he's trying to get over this stuff it is a comedy it's a very, very dark comedy. There's some really funny stuff in it as well. But it's about this guy slowly falling apart and can he put himself back together again. So this is a really confident film uh, with a really exciting... I just think he's an exciting talent, this guy, Jim Cummings. And uh, I'm on board for whatever. As you may have heard in the interview, I'm on board. I'm not financially on board. I just want to make it absolutely clear uh, if you listen to the interview with Jim Cummings. Uh, but I'm on board with whatever he does in the future because he's got a really interesting eye compositionally. His use of the camera is very, very interesting. Good character work in here as well. And he just seems like a natural in front of and behind the camera. Won't be for everybody. It can be a little bit slow. The characters can be a little bit abrasive and a little bit hard work. But I think that this is uh, certainly something that you should try and take yourself to this weekend if you don't fancy big things smashing into each other or if you're still laughing yourself silly at Booksmart and you fancy going to see something else then maybe go see Thunder Road Sounds good Four stars then for Thunder Road and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast Join us next week for more film related fun We'll be joined by James McAvoy Ooh Talking about playing Charlie X for potentially the final time in X-Men Dark Phoenix. 
We may have another guest as well, but uh, I'll keep it under wraps for the time being until everything is confirmed. But yes, James McAvoy, and he was a lot of fun. He always is. He always is. He's always welcome back in the podcast anytime. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Bye. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I usually do a funny sign-off at this point, or try to anyway. <laughs> but this time, I want to keep it real. I want to keep it serious. Up the Reds. Good luck tomorrow night, guys. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.